Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 7 of the Essential X Lapsed. The uh, ironically titled program uh, might be the uh, only show people care less about than original recipe X Lapsed. So uh, calling it Essential is kind of a leap. But here we are talking about the Silver Age of X-Men comics and uh, I guess X-Men adjacent comics as, uh, as we're going to find out today. Now, if you're following along, I mentioned last episode that uh, X-Men number 6's Namor guest appearance and references to both the Fantastic Four and the Avengers were what firmly placed the X-Men into the Marvel shared universe. I saw that as the kind of the first time that it was acknowledged that they were all breathing the same air, right? Well, I was wrong. <laughs> now, the issue we're going to discuss today is the actual first ever X-Men crossover slash guest appearance slash acknowledgement that uh, the X-Men do indeed breathe the same air as uh, the rest of the characters that appear in Marvel's colorful magazines. Now today, let's talk about Tales of Suspense number 49. This had a January 1964 cover date. The story is called The New Iron Man Meets the Angel. Written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Steve Ditko. Inks, Paul Reinman. Colors, uh, hmm, maybe the same person who does the X-Men? <laughs> Whoever that might be. Letters by S. Rosen, cover price 12 cents American. Now first things first, something weird about the cover and opening splash pages here. Now Stan says that the Angel is making his guest appearance in Tales of Suspense via a special arrangement... With the X-Men magazine Hmm Now inside it states, quote The Angel and the X-Men appear in this story Through the courtesy of the editors of the X-Men magazine The Avengers are depicted briefly on these pages By special arrangement with the copyright owners of the Avengers magazine How weird is that? It's like uh, Stan Lee would allow Stan Lee to use Stan Lee's X-Men and Avengers characters From Stan Lee's Marvel magazines and Stan Lee's other Marvel magazine, which features someone from Stan Lee's Fantastic Four. I don't know, it's uh, just some Silver Age silliness, and it really, really tickled me. Anyway, now our spoilery splash page shows the Angel and Iron Man engaging in battle high above, I don't know, the vast farmland adjacent to Manhattan? I don't know, maybe uh, Central Park was more farm-like back in 1964. Anyway, how did we get here? Well, you see, Angel was heading back to the Xavier School one day, and he figured he'd save himself, like, I don't know, 20, 30 seconds by cutting across the Stark factory. And he does so. And as he does so, he sees Iron Man waving at him frantically on the ground. Warren simply assumes that Iron Man is a fan who's excited to see him. And you know, uh, Angel is quite excited to see Iron Man as well in the flesh, or metal, or whatever it is that an Iron Man is composed of. Now here's the thing. Tony is not waving because he's happy to see him. He's actually warning the Angel to stay away because he's just about to test an atomic bomb. Yes, an atomic bomb. Right outside the city. Uh, you'd almost think there'd be some sort of signage up or something. But no. Uh, just an idiot in an iron suit flailing his arms like a jackass. That's all the warning you need that an atomic bomb is about to go off. Anyway, Tony jets up to cut off the angel at the pass. But 
it's too late, because the atomic bomb goes off, and New York is vaporized, killing the Avengers, X-Men, Spider-Man, and Fantastic Four. Then about a year later, Galactus arrives, and with no one to stop him, devours the planet, from which he gets an especially bad case of Ajita. So, uh, Marvel Universe, 1961-1964. See, I, I can write the Marvel Universe's tombstone just like our current year head of X did during the 2015 Secret Wars, and, uh, I don't know, maybe my way was a little bit more satisfying. Okay, okay, actually none of that happened, except that the atomic bomb did explode. That did happen, and the uh, radioactivity hits both Iron Man and the Angel. However, Tony's armor somehow protects him from it. I don't know, maybe it's uh, maybe his armor is made out of uh, refrigerator parts. Is that, a, is that an Indiana Jones reference? I could have sworn I remember uh, people complaining about that not too long ago. Now, Warren, unfortunately, is pelted with the stuff, but good. So, we gotta assume he's going to die, like, any minute from now, right? Well, no, that's not the case at all. Now, don't get me wrong, Warren does feel different after being bombarded by atomic radiation. Uh, He actually feels like a completely new person. Someone sneakier, craftier, slyer, and yes, he'll even admit, a more evil person. Um, okay. Um, Tony, after recovering from the blast, attempts to chase Angel down in order to help him. But his little booty jets give out and he plummets to the newly infertile and radioactive Earth below. And I mean, I'm gonna come clean here, I am reading this in the Black and White Essentials volume, so I just gotta assume that the entirety of the Stark Factory is glowing bright green at this point, right? It's, it's gotta be. Anyway, he crashes through the roof of his laboratory, but he's able to engage his onboard magnetic repellers to slow his fall just enough to save him from any sort of horrible injury. Unfortunately for him, his armor will require some repairs before he can once again try and hunt down the angel. He calls into Pepper Potts, who looks incredibly matronly here, and he tells her that uh, he is not to be disturbed for the next several hours. Scene shift. We're over to the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters, where Warren Worthington informs his classmates slash teammates slash friends that he's leaving the X-Men. Now, it's worth noting here, Ditko draws some strange-looking X-Men. Kid Cool looks like he's in, like, partial thaw. Looks more like a muck man than an ice man. It's very, very unpleasant-looking. Now, the team, as you might imagine, is quite shocked at the Angel's betrayal. To which, he asserts that he just doesn't have time to waste with the loser X-Men anymore. And instead, he's going to join up with the so-called evil mutants. Because that is where the action is. Now, Gene suggests that they stop Warren from leaving until Professor X can return from wherever he is. Angel doesn't dig that idea so much, and so, a fight is on. Now, Angel flips Beast right into Cyclops while evading Bobby's ice wall and Gene's microwave lines... I suppose this makes sense, as every single issue of the X-Men to this point has Angel deftly evading something or another. That's basically his his secondary mutation, is just being able to avoid things. Now we jump back to Tony. Now he's affixing a paper-thin iron foil insulation to his chest plate, and he refers to himself as a, quote, ever-loving millionaire playboy industrialist. Ay ay ay. Um, back to Xavier's, or as the caption reads... Back to the ranch. Okay. Angel is throwing some furniture at his former teammates before making a break for it. Just then, Professor X wheels up, 
And when the X-Men try to explain the sitch, he talks to them all like they're idiots. Which I'd say is probably just a way to fill readers of Tales of Suspense in on his mental powers. But nah, Professor X is just a dick. Cyclops won't stop talking. He's like, hey, we gotta tell you. And so Beast kindly tells him to shut up at his face. Now, Xavier reaches out to the angel and orders that he return at once. And he calls this an unqualified order. Which, I mean, that might make sense. I've never heard anyone refer to an order as being unqualified before. Uh, maybe that meant something different then, or maybe I'm, maybe I'm just an idiot. I don't know. Angel refuses, again proclaiming himself as being the newest in a line of so-called evil mutants. Xavier wonders if he's failed, if the whole X-Men experiment was doomed from the start. What if all he's been doing is grooming tomorrow's supervillains and trying to peek up Jean's skirt? Anyway, from here, the X-Men hop on their closed-circuit CB radio gimmick to try and alert the Avengers. The, The who now? The Avengers? Oh, oh, you know the Avengers. Now, this is where we find out that this issue is firmly placed before the events of Avengers number four. And heck, maybe even earlier, as the Hulk is still depicted as being a member of the team. So, that would also put this before X-Men number four, so before the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants is introduced. So, the Avengers roll call includes Hulk, Thor, Giant Man, Wasp, and Iron Man. So, no Captain America, so this is pre-Avengers number four. So let's follow Cyclops' radio alert. We see that Bruce Banner did not get it. He did not get the message because he's busily working on some sort of science-y thing out in a New Mexico proving ground. Thor also didn't get it because he's currently Dr. Don Blaking. Hank and Janet missed it as well because they're currently cutting a rug somewhere, staring it into each other's eyes. Tony Stark, however, did get the alert. And and I mean, this is his book, so it stands to reason, right? So, Tony's concealed transmitter begins to ping while he's in a meeting with Happy Hogan. He gruffly excuses himself, basically telling Happy to get out of his face. Happy barges over to Pepper's desk to uh, whinge a bit. Tony immediately knows that this alert pertains to the angel. That kind of begs the question as to why he just stopped pursuing him in the first place. I mean, his armor is fixed, yes? you'd figure his top priority might be checking in with the superhero who he caused to go bad by blowing up an atomic bomb in his face, right? Maybe? I don't know, what do I know? Back to the angel. Now he's trying to figure out how he might start running with the baddies. How does one find a group of evil mutants, especially before the Brotherhood's introduced? Well, Warren figures that maybe that's not the best course of action, and instead he should draw the bad guys out to him. And so he decides to steal a bunch of dynamite from a construction site and goes nuts with it. In a very, uh, indestructive, undestructive sort of way. Whatever means that he didn't break nothing. And he causes an explosion in the sky and in the water, right? So I guess we don't have to worry about necessarily walking back any of these atrocities. You know, he didn't really do anything but maybe kill a few birds, kill a few fish. And, uh, I mean, that's just par for the course. So Angel does the thing and stands there to wait for the likes of Magneto, the Vanisher, and the Blob to come find him. Well, maybe just Magneto, because the other two have been mind-wiped, and at this point, Magneto is their only villain. Now, at this point, the National Guard have shown up to deal with this avian threat. Iron Man flies up before they can take aim and fire, pleading with them to give him a chance to fix this situation. He claims that the Angel isn't responsible for his actions, though... He doesn't exactly take the blame himself for 
you know, detonating an atomic bomb nearby. The officers give Iron Man ten entire minutes to de-escalate the situation. And so Tony flies up to the Angel, who is still just hovering there waiting for the evil mutant bus to arrive. He proves to be far more agile than Iron Man, backflipping midair, then grabbing Tony by his booties and dangling him over the city. Iron Man then cuts off his booty jets, which is enough to distract Warren long enough for Tony to grab him by the wrists. Angel is able to break away with ease. And man, really makes you think that Angel was being lined up as a top-tier Marvel character at this point, does it not? Like he's the first X-Man to get a uh, guest spot in another book, or a focused guest spot, because, I mean, they're all here, but he is definitely the standout. He's on the cover, even. I wonder, you know, was Angel going to be like an A-lister? Sure feels that way, huh? Anyway, Angel escapes into a nearby plane hangar. Iron Man uses his magnetic gimmicks to lock a door on the other end so Angel can't escape. You know, it's one of those hangars with doors on either end. And so Angel sees that he's locked in, so he decides to use another door, because another door is wide open. So really, what a waste of some perfectly good magnets. Now Angel, once outside, decides to return the favor, slamming the door behind him, leaving poor Tony Stark locked in the hangar by himself. So hoist by his own magnetic petard here. Um, Tony uses his arm power pack to break his way out. We see a little cross-section of his gauntlet, which I don't know what it's supposed to be showing us besides strong. I, I don't know. Science, I guess. Now, once outside, he spies Angel waiting on a nearby water tower, still spying for evil mutants. Tony then decides it's time to do or die, literally. And so he thrusts right into Angel, grabs him by his non-existent collar, and flies him way up into the atmosphere, to the point where his little booty jets start to give out once again. I don't know if it's because of a lack of, I guess, usable oxygen that high up, or maybe they just burnt out. Who knows? And so... Tony begins to fall, and from this altitude, it means certain death. Angel stops to think for a moment. He knows Iron Man needs help, because otherwise he is definitely going to die. The officers down below comment that they see Iron Man falling, and they already conclude that this is curtains for him. Tony continues to fall, wishing that he had the opportunity to say goodbye to Pepper and Happy. But then, something happens. Warren Worthington III's heart grows three sizes, and he realizes that he must save Iron Man. And so he swoops down and does. Now you see, this was Tony's plan all along, to put himself in the worst danger possible in hopes that it might snap Angel back to his normal heroic self, and thus cure him of atomic bomb radiation. Back on the ground, Iron Man informs the officers that the Angel is back to normal. Which, I mean, that's all well and good, right? But... Dude did just steal and detonate a whole bunch of TNT. Then again, Iron Man himself did just detonate an atomic bomb, so, I mean, who's even keeping track anymore? It's worth noting here that Iron Man does place the blame for Angel's misbehavior on Tony Stark. And, you know, nobody heads off to arrest him either. Angel, upon learning about his bombardment with atomic rays, deduces that it totally makes sense that he was acting so evilly. Um, What? Uh, maybe, maybe this is a meta-commentary on the evils of atomic energy? Maybe Stan Lee is making a comment or a statement on the end of World War II? Or maybe this is just a stupid Silver Age comic. You make the call. 
Anyway, the X-Men arrive to pick up their winged pal, and Professor X pats himself on the back for not completely corrupting his young charges, before commanding that they all report back to the school immediately for class under the threat of... demerits. Angel and Iron Man shake hands and part as friends, hopeful that one day they'll fight on the same side, and uh, that is going to become a theme for basically every X-Men or just plain Marvel uh, guest appearance in these early Silver Age books. So, As Tony flies home, Professor X mentally thanks him for risking his life in order to shake Angel straight. And that's that. That's where we leave it. Next episode, we have an X-Man meeting a member of the Fantastic Four for the first time. Uh, it's Strange Tales, number 120. The first meeting of the Human Torch and Iceman. But now, let's talk about uh, this little Iron Man ditty. And I tell you, I'm like immediately reminded of all the things that I both love and don't so much love about these Silver Age stories with uh, this very issue. I remember when I was doing the Action Comics 100 thing over Chris's on Infinite Earths where I was trying to cover 100 issues of Action Comics before uh, Action Number 1000 came out. And that put me in the uh, the Silver and the Bronze Age uh, fairly, fairly often, I suppose. And in a lot of those stories, the the things that Superman would do would be things that would have to work perfectly, otherwise the the world would end, right? It would be something that would be so dangerous and so high stakes that it could literally blow the Earth you know, out of orbit and send it into the moon or something, or send it into the sun. And it would always work out right. And you'd stop and you'd think, and being, you know, a, a fake-ass comics historian slash analyst, as I am, you try to... I don't know, you try to affix a sort of realism to it, because that's that's what we uh, faux intellectuals do. And you think, like, was it really worth it? You know, was it really worth doing what you did? Because it had to be absolutely perfect, otherwise the world would have ended. You know, everything would have ended if you... If you're doing like a subterfuge or you're doing research or whatever it is, when the success-failure line is so slight and so potentially damaging, (laughs) is it something that it's worth doing? And here we have Iron Man right outside of New York City, or maybe even within New York City, because, I mean, Angel is flying across his factory lot to get to Westchester, so... You gotta assume it's somewhere near a populated city. He's 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 detonating an atomic bomb. That's uh, yeah, that's kind of wild, right? Um, and what's more, Angel and he are bombarded with the the effects of it. I mean, it's very very bizarre here, but also totally fitting with you know silly Silver Age stuff. So you can't help but to appreciate and. Sort of kind of love it, while at the same time being like, how would this <laughs> ever, ever happen? But again, we're reading a story about a, a guy who controls a suit of armor and another one who has wings growing out of his back. So I guess realism is, uh, I don't know, maybe being a little bit pedantic in it. Now talking a little bit more about Silver Age tropes. Uh, this is an early, early appearance of the hero versus hero trope that Marvel has... Uh, Gone on to perfect, then destroy <laughs> in more recent years here. But it's the basic, 
you know, misunderstanding slash mind control slash whatever you want to call it that pits two Marvel heroes against one another. It's certainly nothing we haven't seen a million times since this, but at the time this was uh, pretty early, right? This is pretty early in the Marvel the Marvel Universe pantheon here. We're just, uh, what, two, three years into the shared universe. So it's early enough to where this is still something of a novelty here, and... It's one of those things where I wish I had the context for it, or the gestalt for it, where this would be something special. You know, by the time I got into collecting Marvel Comics, uh, the dam had already broken on that, right? Where it's every month somebody was guest appearing in somebody else's book here. It was uh, far less, you know, special when it happened here. You think about things like uh, the Contest of Champions and Secret Wars and how those were huge deals because... It was a time where we were seeing all the heroes together, and it wasn't something that happened constantly. So that was kind of standout material here, kind of like this would be, I would assume, back in the uh, early to mid-60s. This is interesting because if you're a reader of the X-Men and you recognize, hey, what is, what's an X-Men doing fighting Iron Man? You might pick that issue up. Or if you're an Iron Man fan and you see this uh, weird group of uh, you know blue and gold wearing teenagers, you might decide to pick up an issue of X-Men. It's a great way to feed into the idea that uh, this is a shared universe and uh, feels like you know, something of a novelty, right? Something special, something a little bit different than uh, your regular good guy, bad guy sort of thing. So pretty fun to see a you know seminal Marvel team-up fight, misunderstanding, whatever it is. And, uh, and I do love that it is you know rooted in the Silver Age, so it's atomic energy that is uh, co- the cause of it. And not some, you know, philosophical sort of debate about the nature of superheroics like we try to do now because uh, we're all uh, navel-gazing intellectuals these days. But uh, fun stuff. Uh, It's been a long time since I've read this story. I completely forgot it was uh, a story that existed, to be honest with you. Uh, I first read this, and I read this this time in The Essential Iron Man Volume 1. So it's probably been... Every bit of 20 years since I last read it, and I you know, I can safely say that I forgot basically everything about it, including the fact that it existed in the first place. But in all of my uh, research, I'm trying to, trying to cover as many of the notable X-Men appearances as I possibly can. If along the way you notice that I missed a, uh, you know, a, a rather important appearance, I'm not talking about like... Them showing up at Sue and Reed's wedding for, you know, a couple of panels. You know, that stuff I can just mention as we get to a, you know, a contemporary issue uh, around that same month. I could say, hey, by the way, they were also at the wedding. We're not going to cover the entire, you know, Fantastic Four annual number three just to say, hey, they were in five panels of it. But like a uh, notable one, like this one here, or the next one we're going to discuss with Iceman and and, uh, the Human Torch teaming up. Those we'll cover. And uh, if you notice that I did miss one, I would love for you to let me know. And hey, I guess that's a pretty pretty decent segue to uh, drop in all the contact information. So why not just do that? Uh, if you want to get a hold of me for any reason, please, I encourage you to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join our Facebook group and talk about basically whatever you want. Uh, We are 90s X-Men on Facebook. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comic commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. 
And as I beg you every day, if you like what you hear there, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show. It would really do a lot to help the show, and uh, I tell you what, the show needs help. So any word of mouth would be greatly appreciated. Uh, Speaking of which, I greatly appreciate that you would uh, take a little bit of time out of your day and hang out with me. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 8 of The Essential X-Lapsed, where I'm probably going to have to stop and start this recording about 150 times over the course of the next several minutes, because uh, basically every other thing I say, uh, I get struck with allergy pangs in my throat, nose, and uh, everything that helps me speak, (laughs) basically, so... uh, Oh boy, let's uh, let's just get into it here. Um, we are, of course, continuing our look at the Silver Age X-Men, not only in their own magazine, but in uh, all sorts of Marvel magazines, uh, as was evident by last episode and this episode, and, uh, well, not to put the cart before the horse, next episode as well. This time, we're looking at Strange Tales number 120. This had a May 1964 cover date. The story is called uh, The Torch Meets the Iceman. So, uh... I mean, that basically tells you exactly what we're going to see here. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Dick Ayers, letters S. Rosen, colors the unknown colorist. Cover price, 12 cents. So, let's get into it here. Once again, 
We open with Stan Lee thanking Stan Lee for Stan Lee's permission on using Stan Lee's Iceman character from Stan Lee's X-Men magazine in Stan Lee's Strange Tales magazine, featuring Stan Lee's Human Torch from Stan Lee's Fantastic Four. Okay. Now we open with Johnny Storm reading a nebulous newspaper. Now we might assume it's the Daily Bugle, because why not? Doesn't say it, but I mean, why not? The cover story of this newspaper, well, actually for both the front and back cover stories, are about the mysterious X-Men. Now the front is lauding their victory over the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and the back touts that there will be a series of articles dedicated to uh, unveiling these new heroes. Now Johnny immediately notices Kid Cool, you know, the youngest X-Men at just 16 years of age, Iceman. The newspaper refers to him as, quote, a frozen version of the Human Torch, which, uh, I don't know, might be a bit of an oversimplification, but it's, I guess, maybe not something we can completely argue. Johnny states that he would uh, really like to meet this kid someday. Reed suggests that that might be tough because the X-Men's identities are secret. Johnny then drops a bit of exposition, or I, I suppose X hyphen position, on the readers of Strange Tales, mentioning that the X-Men, being mutants, were born with their superpowers. And I mean, should this be public knowledge? Um, did the X-Men introduce themselves as mutants? Why would a Marvel newspaper assume that the X-Men are any different from the Fantastic Four, or the Avengers, or Spider-Man, or... I don't know. Whatever. Let's just, uh, we'll, we'll let it, we'll let it be. Uh, now, Sue says she would love to meet this entire X-Men team, and Benji doesn't give a rip. Anyway, Torch tosses the paper at Reed so he can go get ready for his date with Doris. He claims he doesn't have time to waste worrying about some walking frozen custard. Meanwhile, the Thing is still trying to keep on task here. He's got, like, a huge, um, bit of machinery on his shoulders here. I, I guess just waiting for Reed to actually do something. You know, this poor guy is, uh, really the workhorse of the team here. From here, we shift scenes over to Xavier's House of Hardcore, where you'll never guess what the X-Men are currently up to. Well, you probably will. They're wrapping up a Danger Room practice session, because of course they are. Uh, worth noting, uh, Warren and Jean also seem to be preparing to head out on a date. Huh. Now, 16-year-old Bobby sees this, and he whines to the professor about how anytime he wants to ask Jean out on a date, Warren or Scott always beat him to the punch. And so I gotta ask, do these five fellas just, like, pass Gene around or something? That, uh, that seems a little awkward. Anyway, um, the professor, uh, well, he urges Bobby not to waste the entire day, and he suggests that maybe he head into New York City to go see the sights. Bobby finds a Gotham Boatline tour pamphlet and thinks to himself how there are likely to be a lot of, quote, swingin' teens on this cruise that he can, uh, smooze with. And uh, we also get a three-panel de-icing progression from Iceman uh, to plain old Bobby Drake, which is probably more attention than Bobby gets in the actual X-Men mag. Now, minutes later, minutes later, uh, Bobby arrives in Manhattan, so he must have used a Krakoan gateway, or maybe a Krakoan cab or something. Now, whatever the case, he arrives just seconds too late to board this ferry boat. And so he ices up the ground and slides down a dock before pole vaulting onto the departing boat. So I don't know that he paid for his fare here. Is he a stowaway? I don't know. He then de-ices and starts people-watching. Now, just as he'd suspected, there were a lot of swinging teens on board. 
Unfortunately for him, however, they all seem to have been already paired off, right? They're, they're all in couples here. But then he spies a real doll all by her lonesome, and so he heads in to chat her up and gets turned down flat. Now, you see, this chick's already got a date, and she claims that there ain't a single teenager in the world who could be her guy's match. <clears throat> and she says that that's a pun, son, because uh, her beau is none other than Johnny Storm, the Human Torch. So, match, torch, get it? Yeah, It's a pun, son. Now, Johnny saunters up, snaps his fingers, causing a flaming four to appear. Bobby decides to walk away from the lovebirds, but before he does, he remembers that he's a, you know, 16-year-old scamp, and so he freezes Johnny and Doris's sodas. Johnny freaks out before heating them back to their liquid and now probably flat state. Johnny wonders how this could have possibly happened. Um, dude must have a short-term memory or something. It was, like, just minutes ago. I mean, Stan told us minutes ago that he was reading about the X-Men's resident frozen human torch. Oh, well. Back to Bobby. Now, he's walking away slump-shouldered and dejected, as he does, and he bumps into a pair of generic Jack Kirby mooks. Like, literally, he bumps into them. Now, not wanting to get his face punched in, he apologizes and continues along on his way. Now, once he's out of sight, these mooks get busy destroying the cruise ship's communication devices. They then signal to their boss that it's now safe to board and attack. And, uh, they're, they're really looking to attack a boat full of teenagers? What do they hope to gain? Oh, okay. Anyway, their boss is Captain Barracuda. And yes, THE Captain Barracuda. And uh, this is his first appearance, so get excited. And I, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, who cares about Captain Barracuda? And so, Barracuda and his men, they speed over to the tour ship. They board the thing and try to rob everyone on it. They want money, jewels, you know, the usual stuff. Uh, unfortunately, it's all teenagers, so I... I mean, what do they have? Bottle caps? Marbles? What do kids in the 60s have? Maybe a yo-yo? A pet frog? I don't know. Anyway, now one of the mooks grabs Johnny by his lapel. Johnny threatens him, to which he gets referred to as a, quote, helpless teenager. Well, that's basically young Master Storm's cue to start up with the torchin. He melts the mook's gun and starts lobbing fireballs at him as though he were Super Mario. Luckily, just like Mario's fireballs, these seem to just bounce, rather than, you know, setting the entire ship on fire. Now, Johnny spirits Dory away to a cabin so he can deal with the baddies. At that very moment, Bobby has iced up to do the same. Moments later, Iceman and the Human Torch wind up fighting the same mook. They inadvertently use their powers in tandem and give each other props for their neat offense. Captain Barracuda demands that his men blast Bobby with a water hose, and uh, the water freezes when it hits him, leaving our youngest X-Man encased in a giant ice block. Which, I mean, that's usually what he does to the bad guy, so it's a, a little bit of a role reversal here. Anyway, Johnny melts it about two seconds later, and he uses low-intensity flame, of course, because otherwise Bobby himself would have melted. And, you know, they probably would have burnt up the boat as well. Now, Johnny... He then flies up above the boat and unleashes his fiery pinwheel. Now, this produces a crazy amount of heat. Not enough to set the boat on fire, of course. Uh, this boat must be, like, fireproof. Is it made of, like, unstable molecules? Asbestos? I, I don't know. Then Barracuda has his men grab a very convenient asbestos tarp to toss over the torch. Which they do. But Johnny's able to burn through it because it's not asbestos at all. Just a regular old tarp. Now, 
For the first time yet, Johnny worries about burning the ship up. And so, he goes to toss the flaming tarp overboard. The baddies then pretend he's Andre the Giant in a battle royal, and they team up behind him to dump him over the edge as well. Probably getting second and third degree burns all over their bodies in the process. No matter though, at least the Barracuda is still in the game. Back on deck, Iceman's back in action, and it looks like he's about to make a snowman. Well, he's actually just creating some large snowballs with which he can bowl over the Barracuda. Oh, and also by now the boat is officially on fire. So uh, about friggin' time. Uh, Bobby's balls managed to put out the flames, which isn't a sentence I ever expected to say. Uh, Bobby then goes about icing up the mooks. But the Barracuda has procured some tanks of gasoline, which when poured on the ice melts it with the quickness. It also, uh, you know, covers the entire boat in gasoline, which probably isn't the wisest play, um, especially as the Human Torch has already recovered and isn't being too shy about blasting the baddies with fireballs. Now, thankfully, this gas didn't ignite. Maybe it was diesel? I don't know. Now, Johnny's able to trap Barracuda's men in a ring of fire, but then the big bad reveals that he's got Doris. Well, that's convenient. Uh, Johnny drops the fire ring, and Barracuda goes to flee with Doris. Now, when the baddie goes to get away, Bobby produces an iceberg in the middle of the Hudson River, which rises Barracuda's dinghy out of the drink. The torch snags Doris, Bobby flees the scene as to protect his secret identity, and we can assume that the Barracuda was tossed behind bars. So all's well that ends well. And we wrap up with Johnny Storm expressing that he has a newfound respect for his icy counterpart and hopes that they get to know each other better someday. That's where we leave it. Next episode, more X-Men, more Fantastic Four, more me stumbling over my words. Uh, It'll be episode 9, wherein we look at Fantastic Four, number 28. But for now, let's talk about about this silly little story here. I I quite enjoyed it. Uh, I think this one was a lot more fun than uh, the Iron Man sort of kind of team up with Angel last time out, where... If you remember, Angel got a uh, atomic bomb blown up in his face, so uh, this was a little bit better than that. <laughs> um, I do like that we didn't get the, you know, the usual Marvel mix-up thing where the Torch and Iceman would have to fight each other for a few pages, then decide they're on the same team, and then do the thing. And by do the thing, I don't mean literally do the thing like Ben Grimm. I mean, you know, do the thing, be the good guys, uh, take out the bad guys. So it's weird when, like, the two least mature members of a team actually act the most mature when kind of put together in comparison to the usual Marvel hero team-up, uh, Gas, right? So yeah, it was a uh, pretty good time here. Um, something that stuck out to me a little bit was how they kept playing up that the X-Men are, like, really uh, protective of their secret identities. I guess, you know, 60 years removed, it doesn't seem like... Quite the big deal that it might have been back in 1964, but I do find that interesting here. Um, and we're going to get a like a riff on that same exact newspaper scene from the open here in our, our next episode, where the X-Men are going to meet the Fantastic Four, so I guess be ready for that. Um, that's a, I guess it's a fairly decent uh, narrative device, right? It, it gets discussion percolating, a very convenient discussion, but I mean... I, these are Silver Age comics, so I probably shouldn't be thinking near as hard as I am. So what else is there to say? Uh, Captain Barracuda is... I guess he's a fair enough villain to use here, right? Uh, he's 
not much consequence to him, not much substance to him, but he fit the role, right? He was a uh, a pirate on the Hudson River who was trying to rob a tour ship full of uh, teenagers. I, I I really don't know. I mean, there were there were a few adults on on board here. We didn't get to pay attention to very many of them because, uh, well, that wasn't the story they were telling. So it's like, what's the best case scenario here for Barracuda? He makes a few bucks that he's got to split with his goons and pay for, you know, the fuel on his little dinghy to get it over to the cruise ship. This is, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this is some Silver Age stuff. This is like uh, Lex Luthor creating like a $5 billion robot to go steal $100,000 out of a bank. It's stuff we're not supposed to think about. That's uh, basically my main takeaway here is don't think too hard, otherwise you're going to ruin it for yourself and... Uh, Anybody with the misfortune of, uh, of listening to this program So let's forget I, I made any sort of observation there Overall, I, I had a really good time with this It was silly, it was, uh, the stakes were moderate, right? For the characters involved anyway Iceman doing his, getting his own sort of solo adventure away from the X-Men For the first time ever, it's pretty neat I mean, it makes perfect sense for he and the Human Torch to cross paths It's really the most obvious pairing between the two teams And, uh it makes me wonder if this idea might have been born in a letters page for Fantastic Four. As we know, before they started the letters pages in the X-Men comics, there were letters pages in Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man where Marvelites would talk about all the Marvel books. You know, people would complain that the Beast is a ripoff of the Thing and Iceman is a ripoff of the Human Torch in the Fantastic Four letters pages. So I do wonder if, uh, if somebody asked Stan if... Uh, We'd see a Human Torch Iceman team-up battle crossover sort of thing And uh, from that we get this uh, wonderfully silly little story um, But I think that's pretty much all I got to say about that I think I've dragged this uh, conversation on as far as I possibly could here But before we go, we do have one letter in the mailbag here And it's from our friend Billy Dunleavy here And he's talking about our last episode, Tales of Suspense number 49 he says, Tony blasting a nuke near civilians? Say it ain't so. I bet if the police would have actually investigated, an empty bottle of Jack was nearby. On a recent episode of my podcast, Kyle Benning and I discussed a Daredevil story where rad- radiation made him go nutty too. Stan's recipe for madness and superpowers in the Silver Age was definitely radiation. And in case you missed that episode here, uh, Tales of Suspense number 49 had... Angel flying home from somewhere He was flying back to the Xavier school And uh, rather than go around a Stark factory He decided to save himself about 15-20 seconds of travel time By flying directly over it At the very moment that uh, Tony was about to, well, explode a nuke <laughs> And uh, the uh, the armor, you know, Tony's armor had shielded him from the the fallout So he was okay, but Angel got a face full of it and so he turned evil, only regaining his bearings after Tony tricks him into uh, developing a conscience and uh, having his heart grow several sizes. Very silly, and nobody had to pay for anything. <laughs> there was nothing that followed here. I guess damage control just took care of everything without uh, without much uh, without much argument. Probably just sent a bill to uh, the Stark factory here. The police did not investigate. Uh, Iron Man blames Tony Stark for the atomic bomb. Uh, Angel, as he's insane, as he's evil, he he steals dynamite from a construction site and just starts setting off explosives in the sky and in the water. And uh, they, they just take Iron Man's word for it. He's okay now. 
Nobody gets investigated. Nobody gets any kind of a prison sentence. Nobody goes on trial. It was a simpler time. And uh, I guess in many ways a, a more fun time. But in some other ways a very frustrating time. Because it's like you're reading this and you're like, wow, <laughs> they're getting away with everything here. It's no wonder Magneto has been able just to like walk into military bases and forts and just, just you know, loiter in, in very highly... Uh, Highly classified and uh, should be very well guarded locales, and I don't think he's seen the inside of a jail cell yet either. So it's a it's a funny bit about the early Silver Age Marvel stuff. But I'd like to thank you so much, Billy, for not only listening but for writing in. It's uh, been a little bit harder to gain traction on the essential episodes, which I understand. I understand these are uh, very very different than the current year stuff. So it. Uh, if you like that, you may not like this. And if you like this, you may not like that. So I think this might be just a whole different ball of wax here with the essential episodes here. But thank you again so much for, for listening and for uh, writing in. I would like to invite everyone else who is uh, listening to do the same. Uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so several different ways. Help me from being a lonely content creator that I am. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you could be the second person ever to call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. Now you can check out blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. And for the archives and all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that is available anywhere that the internet aggregates noise and or sound. And as I've been begging you every single time out, if you uh, pop over there and like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word. Share the show, maybe tell a friend or two, and... Maybe beg them to do the same. It would really help the show. It would really help me feel a little bit better about the way I spend my free time. So uh, I thank you in advance for that. And I thank you in the present for sharing a little bit of your day with me today. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 9 of The Essential X Lapsed, where uh, there might be a little bit of ambient noise in the background throughout this episode. Uh, you see, they're, they're building three houses across the street from me, and, uh, well, they're taking their sweet time, so uh, it's like they got to get everything done right now, so it's quite... Quite a to-do out there. Uh, the land has been cleared since January or so. And here we sit on the uh, precipice of July, and uh, they're finally getting started. I guess maybe they realized, whoops, we've got uh, we've got houses we got to build. and uh, Or maybe they're just as slow about uh, doing house stuff as, as I am. Because, I mean, we bought this new house also in January, and we're still not moved in yet. So... Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, we are continuing our X-Men tour of the Marvel Universe here. Uh, yet another non-X-Men book here. This is Fantastic Four, number 28. And this had a July 1964 cover date. The story is called, We Have to Fight the X-Men. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters Art Symec, colors is, uh, hmm, somebody... I mean, there there were colors in these things. Um, I don't know. Maybe, maybe this uh, maybe this all goes back to the way I thought things were when I first started reading comics in the late '80s, early '90s. That uh, everything happened because Stan Lee did it. That was uh, that was kind of what I came in with. Any any book I picked up, it's like I never looked at the credits, you know, until uh, years later or months later, I should say. And so I figured everything was Stan Lee. Uh, he wrote them, he drew them, he colored them, he inked them, he printed them, he, uh, he drove them to the store himself. I, I don't know. Anyway, we don't know who the colorist is, is what I'm trying to say. This did have a cover price of 12 cents. We do know that. So uh, let's get on into it here. Now we open, and it's a typical afternoon for the Fantastic Four. Uh, you know, Ben, he's carrying around a giant sculpture of himself that his chick Alicia Masters sculpted for him. Um, the rest of the fam, they're reading a nebulous newspaper. Is it the Daily Bugle? Yeah, sure, why not? Um, now, just like we, how we opened uh, last episode's Strange Tales story, the X-Men are just all over the news. Now, this rag boasts the first photos of them and reveals that they recently had a successful exploit. And in fairness, and uh, I guess kudos to Stan here, the Strange Tale story did not feature any photos of the X-Men on the cover of that newspaper, though I'm pretty sure we've seen, um, we've seen pictures of them in the paper before. I'm almost positive. Anyway, uh, Reed comments on how famous the X-Men have become in such a short period of time. So uh, they're not yet feared and or hated, so how about that? Ben ain't impressed, and he asks, Who'd they ever beat? To which Sue begins reciting the X-Men's exploits. You see, the X-Men have beaten Magneto, the Space Phantom, the Blob, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch. Reed would add Toad and Mastermind. And I, uh, I, I you know, far be it from me to correct Sue Storm here, but uh, I think she's confusing the Space Phantom with the Vanisher. Uh, the Space Phantom was actually the baddie from Avengers number 2, not X-Men number 2. So, um, maybe I spoke a little too soon, giving Stan the Man some continuity points. Uh, that'll, uh, that'll be a demerit, young man, and uh, further evidence as to why you should never, ever edit your own work. I mean, take it from me, I edit my own stuff, and I blame that for the fact that nobody listens to my shows, so take it for what you will. Johnny then reminds us uh, that he and Kid Cool licked Barracuda a little while back as well. Uh, we, you know, discussed that in last episode's Rip Rollickin' Tale. 
Uh, ben still ain't impressed, and he takes issue with the rest of the team engaging in hero worship for them. All the while, he's gazing at the Alicia Masters piece, the sculpture of himself. He comments that Alicia is a much better sculptor than the Puppet Master, which reminds she, him, and us that the Puppet Master is indeed Alicia's stepfather. And so we get a few pages of Woe Is Me. Now, speaking of the Puppet Master, let's uh, shift scenes to where old PM is having a meeting with another villain, the Mad Thinker. Now, this meeting is at the Thinker's request, and uh, we also see that the awesome android is here. Now, the first time I ever saw the awesome android was on a Marvel trading card. I think it was Marvel Universe Series 3. I'm guessing it was a Mad Thinker card, because I don't think the android got one. I think he was in the background of it. And I thought uh, that he had a literal butt for a head. He he looks like he's got a butt instead of a head. Anyway, the Mad Thinker has a plan for how they can defeat the Fantastic Four together. And so, he has PM don some radiation-protective garb so he can tinker with some radioactive clay. Now you see, the Thinker has deduced that perhaps if they made a puppet of Professor X, they could use his mental abilities to sick the X-Men on the Fantastic Four. And so, the Mad Thinker describes to the Puppet Master what he thinks Professor X looks like, <clears throat> so he can get to molding a puppet plaything in his likeness. This is wild. Now, at that moment, we shift scenes over to the flesh-and-blood Charles Xavier, who our narration introduces as one of the world's most famous mutants. I, I thought we weren't supposed to know he was a mutant. I mean, this must be one of the many reasons why I was so confused when the uh, Grant Morrison Xavier as a Mutant reveal happened. Anyway, he feels someone attempting to exercise mental control over him, but he initially manages to fight it off, until the Puppet Master piles on even more radioactive clay. I'm not sure how that works, but it does. And so the puppeted prof calls for his X-Men to report into him, He gives them the orders for their next mission. They are to find, trap, and destroy the Fantastic Four. And the X-Men are quite flabbergasted and also quite stupid because they just go along with this plan without much, if any, argument. So, we jump ahead to Stan's favorite time, minutes later, where the X-Men are arriving outside the Baxter building in their, quote, late-model jetcopter. Now, Mr. Fantastic sticks his head and around six feet of neck out the window to see who's come to visit them. The X-Men are immediately welcomed inside, and we get ourselves a little bit of a meet-and-greet. Cyclops invites Reed to come with them to a nearby mesa where an alien craft had recently landed. Reed declines, which uh, seems a little bit out of character for him, but whatever. Now, you see, he's too busy working on an Air Force commission for a special jet nose cone... Now, Cyclops, upon hearing this, thinks to himself that, yeah, this is exactly what Reed was going to say. He, he, like, he knew, I, I, I don't know how he knew he would turn him down, and I don't know how that's a good thing, but okay. Uh, he then proceeds to blast the bejesus out of the nose cone with his optic blasts, and of course that leads to a fight. Now, Cyclops continuously blasts at Reed, who's able to nimbly dodge most of those blasts. Johnny flames on and gets involved and soon becomes the target of Cyclops' red-eyed fury. And so, it becomes a battle of attrition between optic blasts and bodily flame. Off to the side, Jean attempts to telekinetically lift the Thing statue, but it's too heavy, and so she drops and destroys it. This rightly ticks old Ben Grimm off, and he declares that if uh, she weren't a dame, he'd beat her ass. 
Jean responds by wrapping Benji up in some TK hoodoo to keep him off balance. Elsewhere, Sue kind of just watches this all play out alongside Angel. They're just watching. Uh, Angel then grabs her and raises her off the ground. Bobby entraps Sue's legs with an ice lasso so she can't get away. The fight continues back over with the fellas here. Uh, Mr. Fantastic rolls over to try and knock the beast off his feet. He turns into like a, a rubber ball, basically. But Hank is able to do some nimble acrobatic type stuff, and he balances on the reed ball. Reed then comes loose and sends the beast flying, though he's able to correct his trajectory in midair, bouncing off the nearby walls and landing on his feet. Beast then attempts to spear Reed, but misses due to some stretchy hoodoo. You know, he makes his his midsection kind of shift to the side a bit. And he winds up clashing with the thing, and Jean catches them both with her telekinesis, so... She can't lift the thing's statue, but uh, the thing and beast, that's perfectly fine, I guess. But then, Benji breaks free. He grabs Jean and he lays her down over his knee as though he's about to give her a spanking. Iceman then nails the thing with some ice, encasing his entire head and both of his feet in ice cubes, basically. Cyclops continues blasting at the Fantastic Four's equipment until Reed has himself an idea. Now, this is an idea he probably should have had several pages ago, but uh, better late than never, I guess. Now, his plan is to pretend to surrender and see what the X-Men have planned for them. And so he calls off the thing and the torch, telling them to stand down. We jump to the jet copter, where the X-Men loads Sue into a steel locker, as though she's a screech. Um, Now, this way, the rest of the Fantastic Four will have no choice but to follow them to their next location. So they're using Sue as bait, even though the Fantastic Four have basically stood down. Now, back inside the Baxter building, Reed and the gang prepare to leave. Here, Ben discovers that Alicia Masters had been placed out of harm's way by the X-Men. You know, she's been put up on a high pedestal so uh, she wouldn't get hurt in the uh, fracas. Now, upon seeing this, Reed can just immediately tell that our mutant heroes aren't you know, really bad guys. They, they actually mean no harm. And uh, Johnny, he's not sure he's buying it. Regardless, the Fantastic Three pop into their pogo plane and shove off. Now, Stan's favorite time progression, minutes later, they arrive at a barren ridge outside the city. Maybe this is one of the places that Tony Stark sets off A-bombs. It's very barren and desolate. Now, the X-Men wave Reed and the boys down. And as they do so, Professor X gives more uh, mental instructions. You see, they're to battle the Fantastic Four again, this time subduing them for good. And so, once there are eight Fantastic Feet on the ground, we rejoin our extended fight scene. Now, Ben approaches Cyclops. However, once he gets close enough to reach him, he falls into a hole in the ground. Scott realizes that this entire area has been booby-trapped and assumes it was all the Professor's doing. Now, Reed rushes to Ben's aid, but gets all tangled up in one of those hose winder-upper things thingers that you might have on the side of your house. And that pops up out of the ground, and, and Reed is, you know, he's rolled up. It's kind of like a danger field or something, and uh, not the gets-no-respect sort of thing, you know, like a danger room, but in a, in a field. Now, Sue has Jean trapped in an invisible force field, but releases her when she realizes the rest of her team needs help. Just then, some of those t-shirt bazookas pop up out of the ground and fire asbestos blankets at both she and Johnny. Now, this straitjackets them and extinguishes the torch's flames, except for his head. Then, the ground opens up, and the mad thinker, puppet master, and the awesome butthead rise from down below. Now, they introduce themselves to the X-Men, revealing that they are who've been giving the orders. 
Cyclops immediately recognizes them, claiming to have read about them not too long ago, and he uh, kicks himself for falling for this plot. The Puppet Master then creepily dangles the Professor Puppet in front of our heroes, inspiring the real Professor X to send a mental suggestion to the X-Men to fall asleep. And so they do. Well, not all of them. The Beast does not. He, he fights the urge long enough to launch himself at the Puppet Master, which causes him to drop the Puppet. Beast then stomps on it, breaking the baddie's control over the Professor. Now, over in that hole, the Thing pulls himself back up to ground level. He unwinds Mr. Fantastic from that hose-trap gimmick. Together, they tear the torch and the invisible girl from their asbestos blankets. Then, the combined forces of the X-Men and the Fantastic Four engage in combat with the awesome Butthead. And, well, their attacks are pretty futile. Now, the android takes on the characteristics of whoever it's fighting. And so, when Bobby goes in for an attack, he he himself gets encased in a block of ice. Ben then runs in and tries to lift the android, but as he does so, the baddie turns into a rocky mass itself, proving to be way too heavy for Mr. Grimm. Now, when all looks helpless, the real Professor X awakes from his stupor and exercises some weird mental pressure pointing to turn off the awesome android's artificial nervous system? Okay. Uh, Whatever the case, it slumps to the ground. Now, our baddies attempt to escape back through their underground lab with Beast hot on their trail, bouncing from wall to wall to wall. Unfortunately, he's a little bit too slow. Now, the Thinker and the Master load onto an underground jet plane and escape via an opening in a nearby cliff. Gotta say, some weird topography the uh, Marvel suburbs have, don't they? Anyway, this takes us to our ending. The X-Men and Fantastic Four shake hands and part as friends. And, just like the end of every early Marvel team-up, they all hope that one day they'll work together on the same side. And that is where we leave it. Next time out, believe it or not, we're getting an actual issue of X-Men. Just one, though. Because then we're going back into guest spot territory. I mean, it's funny, in the 90s, people would always complain that the X-Men popped up everywhere. And uh, I, I guess it wasn't anything new under the sun, because back in 1964, they were... Basically everywhere too So let's talk about this issue here I, I, you know, I might be going out on a limb here But if we're going back to the Early to mid-60s Marvel Universe This might be Like maybe the most important Issue featuring the X-Men To this point uh, The Fantastic Four were A flagship title of, uh, of the Marvel line here And I might assume That this This issue could be the first time That a lot of people saw the X-Men so really good exposure for the team here. I gotta assume that Fantastic Four was probably a far better selling book than the X-Men. And, you know, it's one of those things you hear about the uh, the books of old, you know, the books of the Silver Age and even into the Bronze Age. The higher the number was on the issue, the, you know, the more likely someone would buy it because it had a proven track record, right? If you saw a book with a number one on it, well, you weren't really so sure about it. But if you saw a book with... I mean, like, this one's a 28, or, you know, into the hundreds, you're, you might have a little bit more confidence in, in the book here, uh, insofar as lasting power and uh, legitimacy. It's one of those very weird things that is totally flipped from, uh, you know, the golden and silver ages of comics to today. I mean, you'd even hear stories of uh, new books getting launched with a triple-digit number just to trick people into thinking that it had this... Long pedigree and uh, and lasting power. So, 
I think having the X-Men show up in this uh, more tenured, not by much, but a more tenured Marvel book lent them a bit of uh, credibility and legitimacy. And like I said, I'm sure Fantastic Four was uh, more widely circulated than than the X-Men. It was a monthly book and was something of a tastemaker for the early Marvel uh, mags here. I mean, even if we go back to Spider-Man number one, Spider-Man number one's cover has the Fantastic Four on it, which I gotta imagine lent... And lent credibility to this brand new title. You know, going into the '80s, there was a uh, always that that like trend where in Marvel books, if you made it to a second issue, Spider-Man would be on the cover, and in DC, if you made it to a second issue, Superman would be on the cover. It was kind of the the anointment, you know, of uh, of a new character or a new franchise or just a new property or IP, I suppose, where it would just say, you know, this is this is something to check out. So yes, that's my roundabout way of saying uh, I think this issue lent a great amount of credibility to the X-Men and uh, legitimized them, perhaps to a brand new audience in, uh, in readers of the Fantastic Four. So that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Now, as for the story, it was also pretty good. I mean, it's hard to look back at a story like this in current year as anything special, but as we've been saying throughout our little, you know, uh, seminal Marvel Universe tour, this was all new back then. So having the Angel cross paths with Iron Man was was brand new. Iceman and the Human Torch, that's not something that had been done a million times. Here, the X-Men and Fantastic Four, this is the first time they're meeting. So that's, that's pretty important, I think. And it's uh, not really played out. Of course, it does have the old uh, Marvel manner of hero versus hero, where there's a little bit of a, maybe not so much of a misunderstanding here, more of a mental control, but uh, leading to a misunderstanding. Which gets us into a fight until the, the heroes realize that they're all on the same side And then they team up to take down a common foe In current year, that's old hat Something we've seen many, many, many times Probably too many times Here, though, again, it's brand new And it also provides an opportunity for every character to, to kind of show their stuff, right? In, a, uh, in an effective way, but in a way that doesn't cause... Too much damage because it's hero-on-hero violence. So we get to see what Cyclops can do, right? We see him blast the hell out of stuff. We see Jean use her telekinesis. We see Bobby do his thing. Beast is bouncing all over the place. Angel has wings, so he can fly. We also get to see the Fantastic Four do all their stuff. So I guess in the odd event that you are someone who came in to read the X-Men and never read a Fantastic Four book before, well, this serves as a pretty good introduction to them as well. We get to see some classic Fantastic Four villains here. We get to see the X-Men fight some people that aren't Magneto. So that's a good thing, right? Um, and in case you missed Magneto, he will, of course, be back uh, next episode. And, and the rest of the Brotherhood will be as well. It's uh, We just can't shake them. They will be here for a little while until the stranger comes and, and puts them somewhere else for a minute. But uh, it's nice to see the X-Men kind of out of their element. I mean, this is speaking in hindsight, of course. Uh it's not often we get to see them, you know, engage in battle with non-ex-villains. So it's pretty neat to see them facing off against the Puppet Master and the Mad Thinker, uh, despite the fact that they're not some of my favorite villains by, uh, you know, by a long stretch. But uh, it's still something of a novelty in hindsight. Because, uh, like I said, we just don't get to see that all that often. And, I mean, especially nowadays, uh, in our current Krakoan books here, all the bad guys are... Maybe not so much good guys, but they're aligned with the good guys. So maybe we can have uh, the X-Men face off with the Puppet Master again. <laughs> Why not, right? It'll be better than uh, 
uh, nameless Russians and, and people in suits and uh, the Skate 800th alien invasion. I gotta mention that I also appreciate how uh, continuity is used here. I mean, continuity is... Yeah, it's, it's it, there isn't much continuity. I mean, this is all brand new properties, relatively speaking. But it's still nice to have Johnny be like, Hey, you know, uh, me and Iceman got together and beat up the Barracuda. And actually, this episode was supposed to be... Uh, or this issue was supposed to be last episode's show until I read that panel and realized, Oh, wow, there was another X-Men appearance in uh, in a Marvel book. So... I had to go dig out a different book so I can cover the Iceman and Human Torch uh, team-up from Strange Tales. So thank goodness for editorial footnotes and continuity. Both things that I love a lot and uh, things that made me not miss something, right? Uh, Otherwise it would be like 30 episodes from now, it's like, oh yeah, by the way, I missed this. Which as someone trying to go through like as many of the notable appearances as possible would really uh, cause me to lose a little bit of sleep, which... Uh, probably says a whole lot more about me than uh, than I really should be admitting on the air here. I'm a little bit compulsive, I suppose. But uh, I think that's about all I have to say about this story. It was a fun one. It was definitely a fun one. It was an important one. It was the first meeting between the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, which uh, is a pretty major happening for uh, you know a, a relatively new property. So I'm very happy we covered this one. I hope you guys are as well. And just like I said um, a few episodes ago... If I'm coming up on a uh, notable X-Men appearance in a non-X-Men book, please let me know. Because I'm doing as much research as I possibly can. I'm digging through the old indexes to see what, like, next appearances are. I'm digging through the uh, Marvel Wiki month by month, week by week from back in 1964, trying to make sure we don't miss anything. And uh, just in case I do, please feel free to reach out to me and, uh, and let me know. Uh, further, I, I did pose a question a few episodes back about uh, inserts, retcons, things like uh, X-Men First Class, uh, X-Men Hidden Years. Are those things you'd like to hear me discuss on the show? Are those things you feel are vital and, uh, I suppose, in canon uh, to an extent? Because I'm, I'm totally fine doing basically whatever, right? So uh, let me know, and uh, we will uh, get to planning. And, um, you know, it's been a long time since I've extended an open invite to uh, come on the program and talk about some X-Men stuff with me. So if there are any you know, upcoming Silver Age stories you'd like to uh, be on the air to discuss, please feel free to hit me up and uh, we will uh, work something out there. Now, speaking of which, you can get a hold of me several different ways on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90sXmen. And finally, uh, for the archives and all the Chris and Reggie comic commentary stuff, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available anywhere you find noise. And uh, if while you're there you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to share the show, spread the word, do me, do me that kindness. <laughs> Tell folks that this show, you know, is. <laughs> it exists, and maybe they'll dig it. Or maybe they won't. I mean, we'll hope for the best. So if you wouldn't mind spreading the word, I would really, really appreciate it. Uh, Speaking of appreciation, it means so much to me that you'd allow me to be part of your day today. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. 
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 10 of the Essential X Lapsed. We have hit the double digits. And uh, hey, maybe this show will actually make it to the triple digits. It uh, stands to reason that it might, huh? Anyway, let's get into today's book, which is, believe it or not, an issue of X-Men. Uh, it's been, boy, three or four episodes since we've come back to the flagship book. But uh, we are back, and uh, you'll never guess who the villains are here. Like, never in a million years. Um, this is X-Men number seven. Set a September 1964 cover date. Stories called The Return of the Blob, written and edited by Stan Lee. Pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters Art Symek, colors the unknown colorist, and 12 cents is our cover price. Now we open with the X-Men's very, 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 very sad graduation ceremony. Now, as mentioned back in X-Men number 6, after Xavier tricked them into believing he was without powers in order to get them to wait on him hand and foot, and by them, I mean Jean, uh, the world's strangest teenagers were all told they'd passed their final exam. So, after only six issues, our kids are already Xavier alumni. So, this ceremony is basically... Mm, the kids holding blank prop diplomas and wearing mortarboard hats for a photo op, in which Professor X takes center stage. He's the main focus of this photo, which uh, tells us a lot about what we might need to know about old Charlie. Now, Cyclops thanks Charles for everything he'd done for them, and Xavier kind of brushes it off. He suggests that all he did was provide direction, because they had all the talent already. Now, Jean follows up by suggesting that without Charles, they'd just be misfits, Boy, um, he's got them pretty well pimped, does he not? Hmm. Okay, so the photo is snapped, and our youngest graduate, at only 16 years old, Kid Cool, he unrolls his diploma, only discover that it's blank. Hank reminds him that, hey, it's just a prop, and he suggests that he probably wouldn't want a diploma that declares him to be a fully certified X-Man. Xavier then pipes in to inform them, and us, that uh, he actually does have a real diploma for them. Uh, these diplomas state that they met the requirements of, of passing a normal prep school. And that kind of reminds me of that... I can't remember if it was Lobdell or a Siegel Kelly subplot where, um, like, Beast is dodging all these phone calls from the Board of Education who kept wanting to pay the school a visit to update their records. So that was a fun little story from what I can remember. Now, I mean, Beast, of course, he would go on to get his Xavier School doctorate or... Whatever. Now, while on the subject of Hank McCoy, he suggests that they send an autographed copy of their photo to Magneto, with an inscription which reads, Always thinking of you. Um, hmm. Beast, that might say more about you all than it does him. Anyway, to keep the good times rolling, Professor X informs the crew that he's going to be off the grid for a little bit, and so he'll have to choose a new team leader. So, uh... I guess they haven't had a field leader to this point? Okay. Scene shift from here to a dilapidated mansion high upon a windy hill. You'll never guess who lives here. You'll never... Okay, you will. You will. It's the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. I mean, who else do the X-Men fight? Anyway, it's here that we see Mastermind trying to convince the Scarlet Witch to basically shack up with him. And he does his illusionation gimmick to make this dump look like a hoi polloi palace, and he even makes it look like it's, you know, in different countries. So basically, Wanda could have it all if she wanted. Now, Wanda ain't buying it. 
and with good reason. I mean, I'm just reading this, and I swear I can smell Mastermind from here. He looks pretty gross. Now, she then wonders when Magneto will arrive, and this ticks all M.M. off. And so he grabs her by the arms and proceeds to shake her around a bit, which, I mean, that's not very current year of him. Then a chamber pot, or something not unlike a chamber pot, crashes against the wall next to him, and this has been thrown by Magneto. He then grabs and slams Mastermind into the wall. Mastermind promises that he's loyal only to him, but Magneto doesn't care. He has no use for loyalty. All he worries about is fear. Quicksilver, upon hearing the crash, immediately thinks something happened to Wanda. And in fairness, that's usually the case. And, I mean, in further fairness, Quicksilver is kind of, kind of obsessed. Now, he and Toad come bounding into the common area. And so, here's the thing. Magneto has called this meeting to order. I, I guess he didn't actually call any meeting to order, but uh, he's got news nonetheless. Now, he's figured out a way to take over the world? Nah. Become fabulously wealthy? No. Head up a mutant nation? No, no, not yet. He has figured out how to defeat the X-Men. Okay, maybe he's just as obsessed as they are. Speaking of whom, let's head back to the school. There, Professor X has asked Cyclops to go on a walk with him to a never-before-seen area of the mansion. A hallway where not even the X-Men were permitted to tread. Now, Scott's led to a room which houses Cerebro. Now, this is our first look at the machine, and boy, has it come a long way. I mean, this thing is just a rat king of wires, pipes, tubes, and who's what's its And Xavier fires up his pipe, and he explains what this crazy-looking machine is. It's a complex ESP machine. That's an extrasensory perception, don't you know? Now, while Charles suggests that he himself doesn't need this to keep track of mutants, the person who replaces him as team leader will. And it's here where Scott is officially given the position as team leader of the X-Men. Now, Scott feels like he might be the third most qualified. After Beast and Angel, of course. Certainly not Bobby or Jean, because one's only 16 years old and the other is a, you know, girl. We jump ahead to later that night where the non-Cyclops X-Men all decide to head out on the town. Before they leave, however, they pop into Professor S's office to congratulate him on being a big old nerd and teacher's pet. It's here that Scott reveals to his teammates that he was actually considering quitting the X-Men. Now, if we learned anything from Warren getting punched in the face with an atomic bomb, it's that threatening to quit the X-Men is fighting words. Now... Not only was Cyclops thinking of jamming out, he was also going to do a little bit of doctor shopping in hopes uh, that maybe he could cure his dread optic blasts. So I think this is probably the first mention of a potential cure for a mutantdom. Now, Beast suggests to Scott that he's joined them out on the town. It'll do him some good. Scott, however, cannot, because he's got the Cerebro to babysit. And so the rest of the team head out, leaving Cyclops all by his lonesome with the beeps of Cerebro. From here, we shift scenes to a carnival, and it's the same one we went to back in issue three. There, Magneto walks among the rubes in full costume, because, well, you see, the rubes will think he's just a carny, and not the evil supervillain who's probably been on the cover of every American newspaper a whole bunch of times over the past few months. Anyway, we shift our attention a bit deeper into the fair, where Fred Dukes is putting on an exhibition of his girth-based powers. See, he can't get dragged away by an elephant, and he also gets shot in the gut with a cannonball. 
you know, the usual stuff. Magneto sees this and then um, attempts to mentally probe the blob, because that's something Magneto can do, only to discover that there's a mental block in the way, which we gotta assume was what uh, Xavier lodged in the blob's brain plate back at the end of his first appearance. Now, the blob's boss wanders up, and so Magneto introduces himself as Power. I am Power. He then traps the boss in a cage. The boss shouts, Hey, Rube! Which is apparently a carny rallying cry. And as such, a bunch of carnies rush out to see what's up. Magneto ain't worried, though. I, I mean, as he, he, you know, he didn't come alone, first of all, and I mean, even if he did, why would he sweat this? It's a bunch of circus people. Now, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants uh, easily take out the Carnies. The Blob attempts to lock Magneto into a full Nelson, which appears to be the go-to wrestling hold in the Silver Age. Magneto responds by pulling up a hunk of land that Bob is standing on and then sending it and him flying headfirst into a nearby trailer. Now, this bonk to the head manages to shake loose the cobwebs, and Fred Dukes remembers that he's not only a mutant, but he's also an enemy of the X-Men. And as such, he agrees to join up with Magneto's Brotherhood. Now, at that very moment, Cerebro begins to ping. Now, this is quite the adorable and horrifying machine. It's got its own roll call of known hostile mutants. And they include Magneto, Toad, Mastermind, Quicksilver, Scarlet Witch, Blob, and Unknown. I guess the poor Vanisher just keeps getting jobbed out here. So here, the Blob button begins to glow. Does that make sense? I mean, first, why aren't the rest of the Brotherhood's buttons glowing? Because they are there. Second, just because Blob had a mental block making him forget he was a mutant, does that make him not a mutant? Uh, You know, I I don't think Stan the Man figured some 40-year-old idiot would be giving it this much thought some 60-ish years later, so I should probably just let it be. Anyway, Scott dutifully checks the X-Men's sign-out book to see where his teammates have gone for the night, and then he radios Warren on his car radio gimmick, because Warren is wealthy, you see. So, you might be asking, where have the X-Men gone? Well, let's check in with Bobby and Hank first. They're at the Coffee-A-Go-Go, and the place is absolutely overrun with... Beatniks. Gross. Um, now, speaking of gross, Hank decides to free his feet from his booties to give them some room to breathe. Now, the size of his massive tootsies is enough to cause all of the beatniks to take notice. One suggests that he'd like to paint Beast's feet. Some stoned girls suggest that they start a cult based on worshipping Beast's feet, and they were going to call themselves the Barefoot Beats. (sighs) The beatniks then hoist Beast into the air and carry him away, all the while singing about his feet. And, of course, we don't kink shame here. Bobby does not join in on the creepy festivities. Uh, He instead hangs back to chat up the lovely Zelda. And I mean, she was drawn by Jack Kirby, so you might rightly assume that lovely might be somewhat in jest. She basically looks like a gangster in a dress. Um, Anyway, Bobby suggests that if she twists his arm, he might learn to like her. So I guess the clues were there all along, huh? Now, before Bobby can seal any deals, Warren pops his head in to grab him for their next mission. We see the beast across the cafe having a creepy face drawn onto the bottom of his foot. Hank, upon seeing Warren, bounces his way out of there. Warren sees this and suggests, hey, you know what, maybe don't bounce around because it might reveal that we're mutants. 
And Beast raises an eyebrow as if to say, Dude, everyone in that place was stoned or tripping off their ass. You think they even noticed me? And he's got a point. Next stop, Magneto's factory, where he's assembled his newly jumbo-sized brotherhood to ready themselves to take out the X-Men. Then, to the mansion, where Scott is dutifully directing traffic. Bobby ices himself up so quickly, it shatters his clothes. Whoops. Uh, Cyclops takes a moment to flip on a radio, and it's a damn good thing he does, because Magneto is threatening them over the airwaves. You see, he gives them an address to meet up for their challenge. And so, a short time later, and I'm kind of upset it says a short time later and not minutes later, because uh, I was hoping that was going to become a running gag of Stan Lee, considering everything to be minutes later. Oh well. So, a short time later, the X-Men's helicopter arrives at the factory. Magneto destroys the chopper. Just takes it apart. Which, I mean, if he could do that, why didn't he just crumple it up with the X-Men inside it, killing them immediately? I, I, I guess maybe it's more about the sport for old Magnus. Anyway, Bobby creates an ice slide so our heroes safely arrive on the ground. And once there, they're confronted by the blob. And all of their offense towards him is pretty ineffective because, I mean, the blob is a... You know, he can't be moved. He's, he's a pretty formidable opponent. Then Magneto launches a half-dozen torpedoes right at the X-Men. Bobby manages to make some ice tubes to send them, well, up and probably over into a nearby neighborhood, uh, killing many, many innocent people. I guess we'll just let damage control worry about that. That's kind of what we pay them for. Off to the side, Beast chucks some mud in Blob's face and then manages to dropkick him right off his feet. Angel approaches Magneto, who at this point has surrounded himself with a protective barrier of torpedoes. Then Quicksilver runs in, prompting Jean to comment that he's far too fast for them, despite the fact that they say this every single time they meet with him and still somehow manage to catch and defeat him. As a matter of fact, Jean immediately nabs Pietro in a telekinetic bubble, I mean, like in the very next panel, so yes, you can catch him. Wanda then throws up a gang sign, hexing the X-Men into tripping over their own feet and freeing her brother. Off to the side, Bobby's got the blob encased in ice. And I mean, when has this ever worked? And indeed, it doesn't work here either. Old Fred busts out of the block and begins making his approach toward our heroes. Just then, Magneto releases another salvo of torpedoes. Now, the rest of the Brotherhood warns that the blob is directly in their path, and Magneto does not care a whit. He even goes so far as to suggest that the blob's already served his purpose, and uh, he doesn't have much more use of them. And so, the Blob winds up getting slammed with like a half-dozen torpedoes. And even though he was already bracing for the impact, this actually takes him off his feet. The X-Men check in with him to make sure he's okay. Meanwhile, Magneto and the Brotherhood load into a Magna car to make their escape. Now, Cyclops goes to blast the thing out of the sky, but he is stopped by Warren. Warren reminds Scott that Wanda and Pietro are on board this Magna car and uh, reminds him that they're not entirely sure that they're really all that bad. Then, the dust settles, and Fred pulls himself up to his feet. The X-Men invite him, once again, to join their side, and he, once again, declines. This time, he vows not to deal with any mutants ever again. Good, bad, or ugly, he wants absolutely no part in it. And we wrap up the issue with the X-Men getting ready to walk all the way home, since, you know, their, their helicopter is in many, many pieces. Next episode, we go on a journey, and we join... Magneto in a guest spot of his own. I think probably his first ever guest spot when he's going to tangle with Thor. And uh, 
Well, that was an issue that finally prompted me to subscribe to Marvel Unlimited. I promised myself I would never do it, but uh, indeed I did, because, well, I want to make sure that this is as all-encompassing a project as possible here, where we cover all of the notable appearances of the X characters, good and bad. I mean, because, I mean, nowadays, we can't tell the difference anyway, so uh, I guess Magneto's as much of an X-Man as, uh, well, basically any of the X-Men. So I wanted to make sure that was included. It's uh, it's a fairly fun issue. Um, I had to read it on my phone, which isn't the funnest way to read comics. Um... The purpose of getting Marvel Unlimited was to make some use of my ancient iPad that I haven't used in many, many months. I haven't even turned it on for many months, but uh, spent a little while yesterday digging through the other house, trying to track this thing down with designs on, you know, starting a subscription to Marvel Unlimited, reading this this book we're going to cover on the next episode, and uh, not having to worry about really having to do much digging, you know? And so I, I get it, it's dead. It takes like two hours just to get it to like 4% battery after it was plugged in. That's how how long it had been on the, off the charge. And so I get it to go, I get it to go on, and I go to the App Store and I find Marvel Unlimited, I click download, and it kind of just hangs there. It's like, okay, so I shut it down, bring it back up, do the same thing again, and it kind of just hangs there. And then third time... Same thing, it just hangs there, but then finally it uh, it prompts me to put in my my password. Like, oh, okay, good, finally, we're, we're on our way here. And I put my password in, and it spins, and it spins, and it spins, and it says, uh, you you know, this, this app requires uh, iOS 11. And I'm like, oh, okay, so let me update the iOS, and no, can't do it. Uh, the highest mine will go is iOS 10.3. I guess it's a fourth generation or something like that, and... Apple being Apple is already on its, like, 75th generation, I believe. So, yes, I'm I'm obsolete insofar as iPad, so I had to use my phone, which is a little bit newer. So, uh, yeah, I had to read a Thor adventure on my phone. So this is to say I'm currently in the market for a, uh, for a tablet, so if anybody has any recommendations, please don't hesitate to let me know. Now, speaking of people letting people know things here, uh, we have a letters page. And boy, do we got a lot of letters. So let's get into them here. First one's from Mrs. Laura Franklin in New Brunswick. Now, she is a 33-year-old unashamed comics magazine enthusiast who uh, got her husband to begin reading the X-Men. Now, they both love Professor X, and they threatened to stop buying the book completely if he's written out. So, uh, whoops. It's uh, quite the issue to print this missive in, cause considering uh, Xavier decided to go off the grid today. Uh, now Stan, he writes in, he promises that the prof will be back when we least expect him. Which is to say when he's featured on the cover of X-Men number 9 in a couple months, probably. Next, Jim in Indiana. He wants the X-Men to wear more individualized costumes. And he just thinks the X-Men are swell. They're the second best thing that Marvel's putting out next to Daredevil. Now, Stan takes this opportunity to ask the other fans what they feel about giving the X-Men some new duds. And, uh, you know, for, for those of us in the know, uh, this might be like a monkey's paw sort of thing in the making here. Because uh, some of them costumes they get in, the, in like 20-some-odd issues are going to be very, very ugly. Next up, Jerry in California. He likes Cyclops the best because he acts the least like a teenager. You see, Jerry is not a fan of teenage heroes, especially not the Human Torch. 
Stan kind of sidesteps the criticism here to ask Jerry if he's got a problem with teenagers or just the Marvel take on them. So uh, I guess ball's in your court, Jerry. Next up, Frederick in Bangkok. He writes to tell Stan that at the Bangkok embassy they get some Marvel mags. The X-Men, Avengers, Fantastic Four, and Spider-Man. He loves them and he always looks forward to the new issues. And Stan thanks him. Next, Larry in Oklahoma. He feels the X-Men are great, wonderful, and stupendous all at once. And once he finishes an issue, he feels as though he's been put in a trance. Okay, dude. Let's, uh, let's, let's calm down a little bit. Next, Rocky in California. He likes the Danger Room training sessions, which I, I guess that's why we keep getting them. Now, he thinks the Brotherhood outside of Mastermind are corny. He asks why the Scarlet Witch is shown wearing green on all the covers. He misses Iceman having boots. He thinks Beast's glasses and haircut look stupid. And he wants Cyclops and Marvel Girl to get together. Now, Stan addresses the Scarlet Witch coloring error by suggesting that they turned it green on the cover on purpose to better balance the look of the cover. So, wasn't a mistake. They just thought green went better. Okie doke. Um, he also says to give Gene and Scott a little bit of privacy. You damn pervert, Rocky. Come on. Give him some time here. Uh, that's the end of the letters, but we do have some special announcements. Now, Stan announces that the Marvel annuals are out, so buy them while you can. Stan asks the readers what they think of Cyclops as team leader, because this is, you know, his initial outing in the role. And finally, he also wants to know if folks are sick and tired of Magneto and the Brotherhood. Um, if I may, from 60 years in the future, yes, <laughs> we are quite sick and tired of Magneto and the Brotherhood. Stan closes out by promising us some special guest stars and surprises in the next issue. And, uh, well, I don't know if there are or not. I know uh, we got Eunice the Untouchable, I believe. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. But that'll do it for the uh, letters page and, I guess, the proto-Stan soapbox, where he's given us some special announcements. So what do we think about this issue? What do we think about this issue here? Um... We're really starting to see that uh, the X-Men and Magneto are kind of just really obsessed with one another. You know, when people talk about, like, Batman and the Joker, you know, it's like they only exist because of one another. You know, they're so obsessed with one another that without the other, one would go away, right? Here we start with B saying, hey, let's send a picture to Magneto saying we're thinking about him. And here we have Magneto with his brotherhood saying, like, okay, our next mission, beat the X-Men again. I don't want to get into that whole definition of insanity thing, but, I mean, it hasn't worked to this point, Magneto. Come on, pal. It was pretty neat seeing the blob again, and I, I really like how he is just so sick of both the X-Men and the Brotherhood. He's just like, I want no part of you. You know, the X-Men, you, you guys are a bunch of nerds. Magneto, you're, you're, you're a dick. I don't want to be with anybody here. I'm just going to go back to uh, getting cannonball shot into my, shot into my sternum. But he will actually go away for a little while. Of course, he won't be gone forever. He'll be back maybe when we least expect him. I think that's when uh, when all Silver Age characters come back, at least according to uh, Stan's soapbox there. Let's see, what else here? This is the first time we saw Cerebro. That was pretty interesting, considering what we know about Cerebro now. And uh, the fact that it's not just a helmet, it's not just a uh, you know little console, it's a room full of... Weird cables, coils, wires, just nasty stuff. And um, I just love how quaint 
the little buttons on the outside of this thing are where we have our you know our, our massive roster of hostile mutants <laughs> and it glows when one of them shows up but I mean as I mentioned there's a, during the synopsis it really didn't make much sense that magnetos didn't glow since magneto was like right next to the blob it's kind of weird but I mean like I said during the synopsis I think we're not supposed to be thinking quite as hard about it but I, whatever the case I thought it was pretty adorable pretty quaint and uh, definitely just one of those uh, charming Silver Age things that certainly wouldn't fly nowadays. What else we got? We got Scott officially named the leader of the X-Men here, which I kind of feel like he was always the leader. Um, maybe not officially. It's kind of weird how Xavier is... Like, he makes himself the focus of everything, right? Even in the graduation photo, uh, Xavier's front and center... He considers himself to be the leader of the X-Men, uh, though in fairness, he has basically won every fight for them to this point using his abilities here. He basically gives his team enough rope to, to hang themselves before stepping in and saving the day on the last page. It's kind of his uh, his MO. I think he has a uh, a lot to overcompensate for, our, uh, our friendly professor. Let's see, we have uh, some signs of the 60s here. We got beatniks. Wow. Um... Now, if you've listened to this channel for any amount of time, you'll know that I have a fascination for Street Poet Ray. Now, Street Poet Ray is uh, kind of undescribable or indescribable. It's a sort of... that's not even a comic, really. It's it's basically rap haikus with uh, illustrations that Marvel put out around 1990 or so, um, featuring a character named Street Poet Ray. We did a cosmic treadmill on it. If if anybody wants to talk about Street Poet Ray, I can talk about Street Poet Ray for a long, long time here. I always thought, growing up, like people would make fun of Street Poet Ray. And I thought that Street Poet Ray was going to show up in one of these old uh, Coffee-A-Go-Go scenes. So <laughs> I remember the first time I read The Essential Uncanny X-Men, I'm looking through this thing for Street Poet Ray. And no, he's not there. He's not there, because Street Poet Ray is something altogether different. These beatniks are just like a bunch of stoners who, oh boy, I mean, they got, they're obsessed with the beast's feet. I mean, it's, it's some bizarre stuff here, really quirky and moderately unpleasant. That said, I love the beast being kind of a fish out of water there, trying to be, you know, intellectual, calling out the, you know, the rap poems, the, uh, the haikus that they're spitting here as just sounding like they're reading their, uh, their shopping list and then having a waitress say, yeah, that's exactly what he did. That's why he's a genius. It's, it's fun to see Stan kind of poke some fun at that and have the Beast kind of deliver those lines where he's like, what am I doing here? Until, of course, he's hauled away and has his feet painted. Let's see. Let's talk uh, Wanda and Pietro. Now, it's becoming more and more clear that uh, they're not all that bad, right? Uh, the X-Men are even holding back from attacking Magneto, fearing that they might catch you know, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver as collateral damage. We had Scott with a clear shot at the Magna Car, but uh, Angel's like, hey, wait, you know, there, there are some people on there that might not be all that bad. And actually, while we're talking about them, I would like to pose a question to you all here, um, an appeal, really, uh, because we know that not too long from now, uh, Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are going to join the Avengers. Now, I want to keep following them, since they are at least right now, very eccentric characters. But I don't want to cover every single issue of the Avengers because I don't think that's necessary. 
We're going to probably cover the one where they join the Avengers Since that is a, a fairly seminal issue And it has a lot to do with Wanda and Pietro's next step In their you know heroic evolution So we're probably going to cover that one But after that, basically going to play it by ear If anyone out there is uh, much more learned Or much more recently read on Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch And can point me to some Avengers stories that we should not miss Please let me know Because uh, I would like to cover as much of the seminal stuff as uh, as humanly possible. So yeah, them two ain't too bad, right? Um, now finally, maybe the the main takeaway of this issue uh, is the fact that I mean, in hindsight, anyway, it's the fact that the X Men graduated here, so they are no longer students. They are full fledged X Men, uh, which it's funny you think about groups like the New Mutants and how they've been around for. 40-ish years now, and they still, some of them still haven't graduated, but uh, the X-Men, the original X-Men have graduated in six issues, so very interesting stuff, and a fun little read. I uh, hope you all are enjoying this uh, Silver Age dip that we're taking here. It's sometimes a slog, but uh, I feel like we always walk away from the issues having learned something or having been reminded of something that we may have forgotten, so this is a (laughs) value-added endeavor. At least that's what I keep telling myself. But that is all I have to say about this issue of X-Men. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. If you would like to get a hold of me for any reason, you could do so many different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me on Instagram at 90sXmen. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfinitearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, the entire archives of uh, the channel, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, which is available anywhere the internet aggregates noise. And while you're there, if you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, And uh, maybe ask that they do the same. It would really, really help me out, and uh, it would really make me feel good about myself. So uh, I thank you all in advance, and uh, I thank you all in the present for allowing me to be part of your day-to-day. It really does mean so, so much to me. It's hard for me to even put it into words. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 11 of The Essential X-Lapsed, where we are going to cover the book that finally caused me to, uh, to decide to go all in with Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, I know, I've, uh, I've said it many, many times that I don't do digital, but, uh, well, I guess I kinda am now. Uh, I'm not loving it. I mean, I, I do like the convenience of Marvel Unlimited. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful platform for folks who are trying to, you know, learn a little bit more about the history of uh, the Marvel Universe, where things started, where things came from, where things were going to, and it's, you know, it's all at your, it's all at your fingertips. So it's, uh, as cliche as it may sound, it is a uh, heck of a tool, but for me, it makes it so I don't have to try to search out books or collected versions of books that I really don't want. <laughs> I mean, case in point right here, a Thor story. Now, I somehow have probably well over a hundred issues of Thor in my comics library. Uh, I did follow it when I was a Marvel zombie back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. It was never really my favorite thing. Nothing I looked forward to. It was kind of just a, hey, it's on the shelf. It's got Marvel on it. I'm going to pick it up. That said, I really I really don't care about Thor so much. So I was not going to run out to try to track down the essential Thor Volume 1 or Volume 2, or whatever one would have this story in it, or, or just try to find it elsewhere. So I figured Marvel Unlimited was the way to go. And as I read this, I read this on my, my cell phone. Because I didn't realize there was like a kind of a back way to uh, make this thing show up on my iPad, which is ancient and uh, out of date, obsolete. The Marvel Unlimited app does not work with it. It's not compatible with it. It needs to be a whole different iOS and yada, yada, yada. I figured out a way to get around that. So I am now enjoying Marvel Unlimited on my ancient tablet, where it still works like a charm. So, uh... We are back in business here, not going to miss a beat. So, let's get into today's book. This is, as I mentioned, a Thor story that appeared in Journey into Mystery number 109. This had an October 1964 cover date. The story is called When Magneto Strikes. Written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters S. Rosen, colors, eh? And cover price, 12 cents. Now, it's worth noting to start... The uh, issue remarks that Magneto is appearing by special arrangement with the publishers of the X-Men magazine. And here, Stan admits that it's all in-house. He's like, the publishers of X-Men, which is to say, us. So, uh, I kind of hope that this isn't the last time we get a caption like this, though, because it is, it's pretty adorable. Now, I should probably point out that Magneto's, uh, costume is, well, it's purple on the cover, which is kind of weird. I wonder if this is because, uh... Maybe Stan thought purple would look better than red on the cover, like, you know, Scarlet Witch being green instead of, uh, you know, Scarlet on the covers of X-Men. Anyway, let's uh, let's open this sucker up here. Uh, we open with Thor being given a tour of the Hall of Heroes exhibit that's going to debut at the upcoming World's Fair. Now we see statues of Thor himself, his fellow Avengers, and the Fantastic Four. Now the Fair Fellow also claims that there are statues for Spider-Man, Daredevil, and the X-Men in another room, though uh, we don't get to see them. And it's interesting how, uh, you know, the X-Men are being included, which uh, doesn't speak to them being feared and or hated, does it? Though, in fairness, J. Jonah Jameson does fear and hate Spider-Man, and he's got a statue, so who knows. Now it's worth noting 
The reed statue looks like it's trying to give the coochie coochie coo to giant man. It's a little odd. Anyway, Thor declares this to be a great honor, and he hopes that he is worthy of it. He then takes off because he's got some mundane stuff to attend to. Uh, Namely, he's got some Dr. Donald Blaking to do. As he flies toward the hospital, we see a gnarled tree sticking up out of the harbor. Now, we readers get the old sideways look at it, which reveals it as being a crazy submergible fort. Looks kind of like the Technodrome, but with a tree growing out the top of it rather than a mechanical eyeball. Anyway, uh, you will probably never guess who's inside. Okay, we all know who's inside. It's Magneto, and he's not alone. He's got the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants with him. But, here's one, you'll never guess what they're trying to do. Okay, we all know what they're trying to do. They're trying to find the X-Men, because that is all they ever do. Now, Magneto is peering through a periscope, which is the reason why there's a giant gnarled tree atop the fort, because it's a disguised scope, you see. Now, whatever the case, Magneto believes that they are getting very close to sussing out the X-Men's secret location, which, I mean, he's in New York City now, which is the same place he always looks for them, right? How could he be any closer or any further at this point? Anyway, Toad bounces in all freaked out by a sea monster that's broken into their vessel. Magneto annoyedly and disappointedly reminds Toad that this is just Mastermind's gimmick here. This is what he does. Why Mastermind would be manifesting a dumb-looking sea lizard, though, is behind me. Is he just trying to screw with Toad? That seems like rather a waste of time and energy, doesn't it? But uh, I suppose in fairness, Mastermind is quite bored and... Uh, yeah, I, I can't think of very many things to do in a uh, in a submergible fort. Then, the Maximoffs enter the scene. Quicksilver makes sure to threaten everyone with the all, if anything happens to my sister, yada, yada, yada. Uh, Magneto's all, yes, that's very nice, before sending them on their X-Men search mission. Once in the Magna boat, Wanda expresses relief that they're going to be far away from Magneto, and Toad threatens to tell on her. What a douche. After they leave, Magneto sits on a giant magnet to try and amp up his already awesome powers. From here, we get a scene shift. We're over to the hospital where Thor, Don Blake's down. Then, Stanley's favorite time, minutes later, we see Dr. Donald treating a young patient who threw his arm out playing football. Just then, all of the medical instruments begin to float. Don and Jane Force to stick their heads out the window and witness all sorts of metallic debris floating in the air. Like, even large things like cars, motorbikes, lampposts, signage from nearby businesses just floating through air, being attracted somewhere. But then it stops. Everything falls to the ground. Don Blake immediately knows there's some supernatural forces at play, and that they're very likely evil in nature. Though it would seem as though all the non-Blake onlookers just wrote this whole thing off as a mass delusion. I mean, can you imagine being that simple? They're like, oh, well, everything was floating, it's not anymore. Oh well, let's get to the store. You know, they really don't care. Now, the workday wraps up, and Jane Foster is oh so excited to get ready for her date with the doc. Well, not so fast, Kima Sabet, because Don Blake's got some business to attend to. He blows her off, claiming to be feeling ill, and tells her that he'll make it up to her tomorrow. And so she harumphs and stomps away. Then, moments later, which I guess is close enough to minutes later, Uh, We rejoin Thor, who laments the fact that he has to keep his alter ego a secret from Jane. He hopes that one day Odin will allow him to spill the beans. Then, Molinier picks up the scent of the magnetic menace, which irresistibly pulls our hero to that gnarled tree in the harbor. 
Thor peeps it out and is quick to deduce that there's more to it than meets the eye. Because, I mean, we already know it's a periscope. Now, in the middle of the treetop, he finds a hatch, which he enters. Once in the down below, Thor smashes through a large door, behind which reveals... Magneto, who is doing his best, uh, you know, Mr. Sinister when he sees Nanny over in Hellion's impression, like one leg up, like, woo, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty funny scene. Now, Thor, at this point, asks the baddie to identify himself. And, well, if there's one thing we know Magneto loves to do, it's introduce himself. He is, of course, Magneto, the most powerful of Homo Superior. He then sends the busted-off door in Thor's direction, and the Odinson sidesteps it, but just barely. Thor rears back as though he's going to smash Magneto's helmeted head with Mjolnir, but Magneto stops him, suggesting that they have no need to fight. Hell, they don't even need to be enemies, even. Now, since Magneto's secondary mutation seems to be tunnel vision, he automatically assumes that Thor is a mutant. And as such, he invites him to join the Brotherhood. And Thor's like, okay, dude, explain. Explain that to me. And so Magneto gives him a tour of the facilities, which are completely jammed with all sorts of treasures, and he offers Thor everything. But that don't impress Thor much. Magneto goes to pour himself a libation while assuring Thor that once he takes over the world, the Odinson will be welcome to share all of the bounty. Thor slaps the drink out of Mags's hand, exclaiming that he isn't an evil mutant. You see, he's a protector of the human race. Magneto responds by yanking a wad of metal from the floor and wrapping Thor up in it. And Thor easily hammers his way out before hurling Molinar at Magneto. He narrowly dodges it, but then it boomerangs around to have another pass at him. Magneto then uses his power, which is apparently beyond mere description, to stop Molinar. Which I, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but uh, you know the hammer, you know the, the hammer thing. And I gotta say, I wasn't expecting to see that happen. Uh, I mean, if Magneto can stop the hammer in midair, does that mean he's one of the worthy? I mean, there's a plot twist, huh? Anyway, it's now time for some hand-to-hand combat. Magneto uses his powers to send Thor flying backwards into the, uh, I guess, the trash compactor area from Star Wars? You know, like walls coming into crush. Quite why this is on Magneto's submergible is beyond me. I mean, this thing must be a lot bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Now, the walls come, you know, crushing in, but Thor is Thor. He's not affected. And so Magneto closes another wall in order to separate them. Just then, Thor realizes that it's been over 60 seconds since he's held Molinier, and so he's reverted back to the puny, weak Don Blake. And the hammer is reverted back to a crooked walking stick. Now, Magneto notices the stick, but doesn't think much of it. I mean, the stick wasn't there a second ago, but it's there now. Ah, no worries. I'm sure it just found its way into the underwater submergible fortress. I, I don't know. From here, Magneto then turns his attention back to the captive Thor, and uses his magnetic powers to pull all the rivets out of the steel walls, using them as projectiles with which to perforate our hero. Don Blake deftly dodges the rivets, but falls victim to a falling bit of debris from above. Don then thinks that he'll work his way backwards, through the tunnel wall thing that he made as Thor the first time Magneto attempted to squish him a page or two ago. Later, uh, We don't know how much later. I'm guessing minutes later. Uh, Magneto checks in on the sealed room, only to discover that Thor is gone. He heads over to his computer to try and track Thor around the facility. And, I mean, this really must be one of those bigger-on-the-inside-than-the-outside sort of layers because this is a huge, huge thing. Now, it's not long before Magneto spots his guest. Though, 
He's just a dot pinging on a security system So he doesn't realize that it's Don Blake instead of Thor It's just a person, a entity And so Magneto decides to turn his facility into the danger room Attacking our hero with all manner of obstacles Just as Magneto's about to finish the job Killing Don Blake He gets a call from the Brotherhood Informing him that they found the X-Men And that's the good news The bad news is The X-Men found them too And are currently chasing the baddies around the city Gotta ask Shouldn't the bad guys be ready for a fight? I mean that's kind of the point of tracking down your enemy, right? Especially in this sort of situation You want to beat them I don't know Uh, We see the Brotherhood being zapped by a wide red beam And we're going to assume it's Cyclops Though we don't actually get to see any of the X-Men during this issue Magneto asks for their location so he can join them But then he hears a scurrying He rightly assumes it's Thor He sees Thor from around a corner picking up the walking stick Which he finds curious, and I guess that's fair Whatever the case, Blake gives the cane a tap And Thor's back up And it's time for round two Thor immediately rushes Magneto, going to smash him with Molyneux. Magneto once again manages to stop the mystical hammer using a magnetic force field. Thor then just decides to hoist the baddie up and throw him across the room. Why not? Unfortunately, he lands right next to a computer console with a big old lever sticking out of it. Now when Magneto pulls the lever, a trapdoor opens right beneath him, sending him down to... Well, maybe this is one of Tony Stark's labs because he's got a, a nuclear bomb down below waiting for him. Ay ay ay. Um but before our master of magnetism can trigger it to go boom, it's covered in ice. Magneto realizes that this can only mean one thing, which I mean come on, dude, you must be looking right at them. It's the X-Men, of course. How they got down here to the underbelly of this underwater submergible fort, I couldn't tell you. Also, why Magneto is suddenly running from them, I also Couldn't tell you Is this like one of those things where like a cat finally catches a mouse And then has absolutely no idea what to do with it when it catches it? I don't know Anyway, after Kid Cool ices up the nuke We see a winged shadow on the wall And a pair of knuckles-out, ape-like hands entering the panel Seconds later Well, well, seconds later, that's a lot quicker than minutes later uh, Magneto makes his way to a Magnus sub and escapes the undersea lair Thor watches as a second submarine follows One with a great big X on the side of it Thor then decides to hammer around a bit to find his way out of the Magnetodrome. He finds the nuke and declares that since it was frozen, it's now useless. So you heard it here first, folks. If we're serious about nuclear disarmament, all we gotta do is freeze the bombs. Thor then blows up the lair, which confirms that, yeah, I guess the nuke is definitely a dud. Though, I am guessing that at least a handful of fish in various undersea life perished in this blast. Uh, we, We just never think about the fish, do we? Now we jump to long minutes later, where Magneto is hiding out in his sub under a reef. He's managed to evade the X-Men, but promises he'll have another go at it soon. You know, probably like in the very next issue of X-Men. Well, maybe not the very next issue, but very, very soon. We wrap up a bit later, where Don Blake lets himself into Jane Foster's apartment so that she can make him a ham and cheese sandwich. And no... I'm not joking Uh, As he eats up, she pours him a glass of milk And then we are out of here Next episode, we are back with the X-Men And we are going to meet Eunice the Untouchable But for right now, let's talk Thor And uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I didn't hate this (laughs) I didn't hate it at all, actually I quite liked it I thought this was a very fun story I don't know what this says about uh, 
you know, Silver Age Thor? Is this something I need to, to check out? Or is this just an anomaly? Because, you know, I mean, it's covering characters that I actually care about. And uh, I'm hard-pressed to think of a time where Thor and uh, Magneto went one-on-one. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's happened in the 60 or so odd years hence. But uh, it was pretty neat here to see... Yeah, see Magneto in a different light. See Thor dealing with a with an X Men villain here. Uh, the cameos by the X Men were uh, I don't know if they were necessary. <laughs> I really don't know if we had to uh, leave them off screen. Uh, maybe Stan was really playing up the whole thing where these books are from different companies or these books are from different uh, different editorial fiefdoms. I don't know, but uh, eh, it was cute, I guess. But it is a bit of a shame that we didn't get to see them Because I feel like uh, like Jack Kirby puts a little bit more effort into the non-X-Men books So <laughs> it would be interesting to see how how they're portrayed in this issue of uh, Journey into Mystery When we saw the X-Men in Fantastic Four, they looked really, really good In the X-Men book itself, they, they don't quite have the same dynamicism Is that a word? They don't look quite as dynamic as they did in uh, in Fantastic Four And I would assume... That they'd probably look really cool here in Thor as well Magneto looked great And I'm totally tickled with Magneto just being so tunnel-visioned on Everybody with powers must be a mutant Like he's just going to start asking everybody to join him No matter who they are, where they came from Aliens can join him, no matter what If they have powers that are above Homo sapiens They must, must be a mutant Even, you know, the son of Odin A god um, Who is a member of the Avengers you gotta figure has been on the cover of a newspaper or two in the past, you know, little while. Quite why Magneto doesn't recognize him is, uh, I don't know, maybe they don't have a subscription to the Daily Bugle up on that uh, house on the Windy Hill that uh, Magneto owns. I guess we could uh, we could lampshade it or no prize it like that. What else we got? What else we got? Uh, the Brotherhood. The Brotherhood show up and they are all in character. I, I like that bit of continuity here where, I mean... Like, you don't have to read all the X-Men books to understand that there is a bit of a, you know, a schism or turmoil within the Brotherhood. We've got Pietro and Wanda who are kind of, you know, they're they're kind of just a duo inside the team where Mastermind and uh, Toad are really kind of just more like lackeys. You could definitely see that there is a difference in philosophy there without being beaten over the head with it, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, I mean, Pietro even gets in one of his, you know, if you hurt my sister, yada, yada, yada. It, it's the same thing he says every single time. What I don't really understand is why uh, why the Brotherhood went out looking for the X-Men when they weren't, you know, um, prepared to do anything once they found them. That seems kind of strange, but it's also very much in line with uh, the way Silver Age villains, uh, or at least lackeys, henchmen, uh, kind of do things here. It's They're kind of the boots on the street, and when they... Actually come across their quarry It's, well, what next? We gotta call in the big guy And I guess unfortunately for them Magneto was otherwise occupied with a god Overall, not a whole heck of a lot more to say Um, The Thor and Jane relationship is quaint (laughs) It's certainly uh, not current year I mean, having him barge into her apartment So she can make him a ham and cheese is uh, That's a little silly Uh, I don't think that would float nowadays But uh, back in 1964, I guess that was just uh, the cost of doing business I chuckled at it regardless It's a a relic It's a uh, quaint thing And probably not worth thinking all that much about Because that could could ruin your time if you do that Uh, Now, as for an issue I don't know that this will ever make me pick up another issue of Thor uh, But 
that said, I'm happy that we read this one. I'm happy that I broadened my horizons a little bit with this uh, with this essential X-lapsed project. I, I really like the way that we're formatting the uh, the program here, where we're not just talking about you know X-Men one through whatever. You know, we are talking about X-Men one through wherever. You know, we're going to all different books here: Strange Tales, uh, Tales of Suspense, now Journey into Mystery. We're going to go back to Strange Tales in a few episodes. Uh, we're just going to keep playing with the uh, with the seminal moments in X-Men and mutant history. Whether or not they show up in actual X-Men comics, that's that's immaterial. We're going to cover as much of it as we possibly can, and. That brings me to my usual plea here. If you know of a story that's coming up that we should be paying attention to and perhaps I might miss it, please let me know. Let me know and it will be put on the docket. Uh, Like I said, I got Marvel Unlimited now, so basically the sky's the limit, right? I don't think there's a whole lot that isn't on there from this era, so definitely, you know, hit me up. Let me know what stories you want to see covered here. As we know, uh, Pietro and Wanda will be, you know, spoiler alert, they will be joining the Avengers pretty soon. And so another request out to the listeners here. If there are any Wanda and Pietro stories that you feel that should be covered on this show, as, you know, they are, you know, technically part of the X-Men family, I suppose, at this point in time. And so I'd like us to keep uh, keep some tabs on them. Now, whether that's in the form of, uh, like, a collection of vignettes from recent Avengers comics, we can do an episode just on that. Or if there are some especially Wanda and Pietro-focused issues of the Avengers, we'll, we'll cover that as well. So let me know your thoughts on that, and uh, we will, uh, I will do my best to, uh, to do it right. We will for sure be covering Avengers number 16, you know, the Caps Kooky Quartet. That is definitely in the rotation, so uh, look forward to that if, uh, if that is something that you would look forward to. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this. Let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a message from our good friend Doc Strange, Billy Dunleavy here. Regarding our discussion of Strange Tales number 120. Now, this was the meeting between Iceman and Human Torch. And he says, hey, Chris, wow, these stories are interesting. Barracuda sounds about as menacing as the Tooth Fairy and uh, not the one from that horror flick. Oh, and I'm glad that Stan is still asking Stan for permission to use some of Stan's characters. That's so nice of him. Thanks for doing the yeoman's work here on these old-school stories. Well, thank you so much for listening and writing in, Billy. Uh, yeah, Barracuda, not uh, all that notable a villain, right? Uh, we won't be coming back to him. You know, I'm sure we won't be coming back to him. I mean, hell, Marvel themselves barely came back to the guy. I think he's got, like, like seven or eight uh, appearances over the past 60 years. So, yeah, he's, uh, I mean, he's perfectly fine for a uh, villain of the week. And when we're just trying to show that the Torch and uh, Kid Cool can, you know, work in tandem. I mean, there are, I guess there are worse people they could have put them against. But once again, thank you so much for listening and taking the time to write in. It really, really means a lot to me. Uh, these, these old Silver Age stories, I don't know how, uh, I don't know how much people want to hear them, you know. Uh, they're very different from our current year stuff. And, yeah, as I've said before, they... They aren't always the most interesting. They can be a slog. And I'm sure hearing me blather on about them may not be the most exciting way to spend a morning or an evening. But uh, for everyone who does, I I thank you very, very much. Now, if anybody out there would like to become a part of the show and write in or call in, I would would urge you to do so. You can find me several different ways. Uh, On Twitter, you can find me at Ace Comics. On Instagram, you can find me at 90sXmen. You can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK. 
Now for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can join in the conversation on Facebook, where we're currently uh, putting together a big, big jam project for uh, the holiday season here. It's going to be a little bit of merry X-lapsed marathoning uh, going on, uh, hopefully, on Christmas Eve this year. So if you're interested in talking about Christmas and the X-Men and maybe more Christmas than the X-Men, uh, hit me up. Let me know. Join the group, 90s X-Men, on Facebook. Finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, including the entire archives, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. And uh, if while you're there you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two. It would really help me out and really mean the world to me. Speaking of which, it means so much to me that you'd allow me to be part of your day today. So thank you all so, so much for that. And until next time, as always, I'll be talking to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 12 of The Essential X-Lapsed. And uh, we're back in uh, well, our flagship book for a couple of episodes, not too terribly long. We'll be bebopping back around the Marvel Universe in uh, in no time before uh, settling in uh, in our flagship for the foreseeable future. But today, we're going to be talking about X-Men number 8. Set in November 1964, covered it. I believe this will be the last issue of X-Men for the year 1964. So we're just uh, we're just really hustling through these, aren't we? Um, now today's issue is called "The Uncanny Threat of Dot 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 Eunice the Untouchable." 
Written and edited by Stan Lee with pencils by Jack Kirby, inks Chick Stone, letters S. Rosen, colors by... somebody, and a cover price of 12 cents American. Now we open, and I mean, stop me if you heard this one before, uh, you'll, you'll never guess what we're opening with here. Um, yeah, of course you will. It's a Danger Room training session. Now, this one is a little bit unique... In, in rather than having, you know, a pervert in a wheelchair looming over their shoulders, this time the X-Men are being observed by Professor S. Scott Summers. And what do we got here? Well, we got Beast balancing on some sort of disc. Iceman is carrying an ice pole. Warren is flying, probably pretending to dodge something. And Jean, well, she's using her telekinesis to sew. She's uh, running yarn through holes in a piece of paper. Now, Angel, while pretending to dodge stuff, doesn't realize that he's about to fly right into a great big net, which he does. Now, Kid Cool turns to check it out, nearly hitting Beast with his elongated ice pick. Um, that, okay. I never thought I'd say that. Um, anyway, Scott proceeds to lecture Warren about being more careful. You know, after all, what if that net was actually Magneto? <gasps> well, Iceman has a hearty laugh, which uh, prompts Cyclops to optically obliterate his elongated ice pick. I mean, talk about hitting a guy below the belt, right? It's here where Bobby decides to show Cyclops how much he's improved at using his powers. And it's the first time that we see him change from his, you know, fluffy snowman look to his more familiar, slicker, Iceman look. Cyclops commends him on increasing his degree of cold. Angel jokes that Bobby's gone transparent, making him a real Sue Storm. And I don't think he'd be able to get away with calling Bobby a real Sue Storm these days. Cyclops then checks in on sewing Jean, and he congratulates her on only screwing up once. As he tells her this, he thinks to himself that, uh, well, he's got a massive case of the hot pants for Ms. Gray. Now, Jean, by the way, is back in her head sock costume, so the uh, cat's eye look wasn't a permanent change, at least not yet. Off to the side, Hank does some balancey stuff, and he holds a line with his toes, you know, beast stuff. Cyclops, for whatever reason, can't seem to bring himself to give a compliment, and basically congratulates Beast for doing what he's supposed to do. It's kind of like one of those bosses who will, like, never tell you you're doing a good job, but instead might sarcastically be like, well, thank you for doing your job, you know, thank you for being proficient in the position for which I've hired you. Kind of a dick thing to do. Now, Scott then gives the team the afternoon off. Jean asks if Scott will come out with them while thinking to herself that she's got a massive case of the hot pants for Mr. Summers, but... He declines. So, we jump to later, where Hank and Bobby are heading toward the Coffee-A-Go-Go. You might be asking why in all the blue hells would Beast ever agree to go back there. Uh, Maybe the coffee is just that good. Anyway, on their way, they happen across a mob of folks looking up to the top of a nearby building. Up there, we see a young child clinging to a rooftop water tower. Hank, worrying that the little fellow won't be able to hold on forever, removes his shoes and runs up the side of the building. Now the mob takes note. They realize that this wall-walking man is not only a mutant, but very likely the X-Men's very own Beast. They don't actually see his face, though, so the secret identity is still secret. Hank climbs the building and saves the tot, returning him to his negligent father in the penthouse apartment below. Beast then drops to the ground, and whoo boy... The mood has certainly changed, and, uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is a big turning point. This is a seminal moment in X-Men history here, because suddenly, the folks there, the mob, they become paranoid and, and violent. They even begin theorizing that Beast planted the kid on the roof just so he could save him. 
in order to show humans that mutants aren't dangerous. Okay. Uh, I mean, the X-Men have been on the cover of how many newspapers at this point? I mean, we just saw in Thor, uh, Journey into Mystery, last episode, that they've got statues in the Hall of Heroes exhibit at the World's Fair. So why the sudden change of heart now? Uh, Whatever the case, the mob rushes Hank and Bobby, who just narrowly escape without giving up their secret identities and their clothes, because they were tearing at their clothes as well. From here, we go to uh, Stan Lee's favorite time-lapse later, you know, minutes later. Uh, We join Hank and Bobby in Professor S's office. Now, Hank is disgusted with Homo sapiens and says he's through helping them. He even goes so far as to suggest that Magneto was right all along. Hey, somebody should put that on a t-shirt. Hank then quits the team. I mean, man, what is this? Ben Percy's Teen Titans? Every single issue seems to feature somebody quitting or threatening to quit the team. Just then, a strange blue-furred man appears in the study from out of nowhere. Now, Scott has not the foggiest idea what's going on, but Hank seems to. He immediately recognizes this strange, bestial fellow as himself. Now, Bobby compliments Hank on his body hair skill. Uh, Gene and Warren enter the study to see what's up. Now, this blue-furred beast informs Hank that he is the next evolution of Hank McCoy. Is it, though? I mean, is it? I mean, Hank, you did drink that weird potion during Amazing Adventures to make you furry in the first place. Oh, well, he reveals that he has come from the future to ask the world's strangest teenagers for a little bit of help. At this point, Scott's about had it, and he says he's going to call the professor. The Blue Beast strongly urges against that, claiming that Xavier would simply mind-wipe the lot of them should he ever discover that this meeting has occurred. So, uh, yeah, old Hank sure has Xavier's number. Now, young Hank asks why his elder self would ever risk breaking the protocols of the space-time continuum. Old Hank says that things are just that urgent and pressing in the present, or their future. Bobby asks if this has to do with their children. Old Hank points the finger at Scott and says, hey, this is all his fault. Well, his future self's fault. Uh, He tells the kids that he needs them to come with him in order to stop Scott from committing mutant genocide. Now, the kids don't believe it. And so Beast asks Gene to read his mind to prove it. And Gene's all, uh, dude, I can't read minds. I'm just a telekinetic. And Hank apologizes and reveals that she'll eventually be a telepath as well. So space-time continuum, be damned. Warren asks if the Professor X in the future can do anything to stop Cyclops, and Beast just looks to the ground. You see, Professor X in the future is dead, having been killed by Cyclops himself when he went Dark Phoenix during Avengers vs. X-Men. He doesn't want to tell the kids this, but eventually does, only to stop Gene from calling the professor up. Now, I'm not sure Gene actually could call the professor here, but I guess we'll allow it. Scott, as you might imagine, takes great offense to this. Young Hank, well, he believes it. He believes it, though. He claims that no matter what the era, he would never threaten the space-time continuum unless it was absolutely necessary, and so there must be something to this. Now, Angel asks the tough question. If Scott grows up to do all this bad stuff, including killing Professor X, why doesn't the Blue Beast just kill Scott here and now? Well, Beast reveals that he can't cross that line. He then leaves the team in the study to consider his offer of coming into the future present. Minutes later, I mean, we'll assume minutes later, uh, the X-Men are in their battle togs and they're ready to head to the future present. Blue Beast opens up a time cube and bada-bing, bada-boom, away they go. They arrive at the Jean Grey School for Higher Learning in all its 2012 glory. Jean starts to realize that, 
hey, if the school is named after me, then, huh, well, I'm probably not going to be meeting my older self here. Scott, unsure of what to do, he decides to call up Professor X on his visual image telephone gimmick. And we find out that Xavier is descending into an almost bottomless cave in the Balkans in search of Lucifer. Scott asks for advice. You know, what, what should he do about the beast? He wants to quit the team. Chuck says, hey, there ain't nothing you can do. And also, don't worry about it, because there's no way Beast will ever join up with the Brotherhood. Now, as Scott and Charles disconnect their psychic call, Beast pops his head back into the office to, once again, tell Scott that he's quitting the team. I mean, have you ever, you ever work with someone like this? Like, they would threaten to quit constantly, just like when you were around, like, just for the attention. Maybe an even better example is, like, when someone... In an online community, social media, a forum, they keep threatening to, like, leave the platform. It's like, just go already. Quit with the threats, right? Just go. Now, that, that's how Beast strikes me right now. He wants to quit, but he also wants people to watch him storm out. Now, from here, we jump ahead many minutes later, a whole week's worth of minutes, in fact, and we see the Beast's new lot in life. He's no longer a superhero. Now, he's a professional wrestler which is the go-to profession for retired heroes in the Silver Age. Now, as Hank is wheeled down to the squared circle in a cage, he thinks to himself that he'll be a millionaire within the year. His ring name, by the way, is, uh... Well, you have any guesses? It's, it's the Beast, because of course it is. That certainly doesn't give anything away, does it? I mean, we got an ape-like fellow with giant feet and hands. I mean, feet that we were writing poetry about not too long ago, and he calls himself the Beast. I mean, this is just a week after the X-Man Beast was nearly mobbed by a bunch of fear and haters. Oh well. Let's get to the match. Uh, the Beast is currently being pitted against the untouchable champion of the world, Eunice. Now the bell rings and we get a few pages of Hank literally hurling himself at the champ. And, you know, bouncing off his force field. It's probably not a spoiler to say that the untouchable Eunice is actually the somewhat evil mutant Eunice the Untouchable, is it? Uh, Hank ricochets off of Eunice one more time, bouncing into the first row of the crowd. The fans call him a bum and shove him off. Now, as he gathers his bearings, Beast realizes that there's a familiar face in the crowd. It's actually not Magneto, believe it or not. It's Mastermind there on behalf of Magneto. Uh, Beast is so taken aback that he doesn't even realize that he's counted out of the match, so Eunice remains our untouchable champion. Backstage, Mastermind meets up with Eunice. Now, this match was kind of an exhibition for the champ as he's trying to get hooked up with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Mastermind tells him that he's still got a bit more to prove because Magneto isn't keen on being disappointed again. Now, that's a reference to the Blob's short stint with the baddies not too long ago. Eunice asks, what must he do to prove himself? Well, any guesses what Mastermind suggests? Well, naturally, Eunice has to find the X-Men, which... I mean, you were just in the ring with one and didn't notice, so we're not off to the best start here. Later, Eunice, in his spiffy gangster dud, saunters down a nearby street, a street where a bank is currently being robbed. He thinks to himself that he should just take the stolen cash from these robbers, and so he does, with ease. The robbers start shooting at him, but, you know, force field. And so bullets ricochet in every direction, probably killing dozens upon dozens of civilians, but, eh, that's damage control's problem, isn't it? Just then, the four remaining X-Men fly overhead in their, I suppose, rebuilt helicopter. Cyclops reveals that Cerebro pinged a new mutant in this area, which I suppose would have triggered the uh, unknown light to start flashing on that cheap-looking console. Angel hops out of the chopper to get a closer look, 
and he finds Eunice, whom he bounces off of because force field. The rest of the X-Men casually jog up to check in. Cyclops attempts to blast Eunice with his optic beams, but they ricochet all over the place, probably killing dozens upon dozens of civilians, but that's damage controls. Pro- oh, never mind. Eunice then proves that uh, while he cannot be touched, he can do some touching of his own. He punches Cyclops in the shoulder as though he just saw a punch buggy drive past. Cyclops, realizing that the Beast isn't on the team anymore, decides to do that thing where Beast hurls his entire body at the bad guy. As you might imagine, this does not work that well. I mean, it doesn't work at all. Eunice grabs Scott and throws him across the street. Now, while in midair, Scott calls out Plan G5. Now, this instructs Marvel Girl to catch him with her TK and set him down gently. Would she have just not helped him if he didn't say G5? Like, would she just just let him splatter on the ground or into a wall or something? Was she just standing there awaiting orders? Is she just a damned idiot? I, I don't know. Scott then calls for a maneuver F12. Now, this is code for Iceman to encase Eunice in an ice shell. I mean, funny how that's Kid Cool's go-to move anyway, and yet we've never heard it referred to as F12. Maybe Professor S is more formal about the maneuvers than Professor X was, I don't know. Whatever the case, this doesn't work so great. Eunice is able to use his force field to smash himself free, and ice shards go in every which direction, probably killing dozens upon... uh, Never mind. Angel and Eunice then wrestle for a bit. Eunice grabs Angel in a weird-looking headlock, to which Warren begins to fly, threatening that Eunice will eventually lose his grip and plummet to the ground to his doom. Eunice isn't shaken because he knows that the X-Men wouldn't ever just let him die, so he must have read that Iron Man story we covered a few episodes back. Let's sidebar here briefly. Eunice claims that he knows that the X-Men aren't killers, yes? So it stands to reason that this is public knowledge. I mean, as a matter of fact here, Warren thinks to himself that they'd taken a pledge never to cause harm in the very next panel. So, if it's well known that the X-Men won't ever cause harm, why in all hells were Beast and Iceman mobbed by those fear and haters? I mean, this feels a little bit forced, doesn't it? A way to differentiate the X-Men from the other Marvel heroes here. I mean, it's definitely seminal X-lore, but this shift in tone was uh, far less than smooth. I think that's fair to say. Anyway, back to the story here. Now, the X-Men decide to head back to the mansion to try to figure out a way to take Eunice out. Upon arrival, they find Hank McCoy. He's tinkering with a device in the lab. Now, he reveals that he's working on a counterweapon to take down Eunice, one that will increase Eunice's power. Huh, now this scares the X-Men into thinking McCoy is in cahoots with the baddie. And since nobody actually stops to explain anything, Cyclops just fires an optic blast in Beast's direction, destroying a whole bunch of lab equipment, while Beast flees out a window and the X-Men follow. Minutes later, Beast has arrived in Eunice's office. Uh, I don't know, maybe he's an accountant or something, I don't know. He's on the phone with Mastermind, asking him to explain that to Magneto that he won't fail him next time. Beast pops his head in and tells him that there won't be a next time. He then blasts him with the device, thus increasing his powers to ridiculous levels. Now, the X-Men arrive just in time to see Beast ricochet off of Eunice's force field. Now, Papa Eunice is very happy, and he deduces that the Beast has betrayed his team in order to join up with him. And, of course, the X-Men also think this. Beast attempts to explain, but Cyclops ain't fitting to listen. Eunice leaves, um, without trying to fight the X-Men for some reason. I thought that was the whole point, to prove himself to Magneto, huh? Whatever. He goes to the gym, because, you know, people go to the gym to get healthy, right? 
in theory, I mean, you might go there to lift weights, do some cardio, get on the bike. Well, Eunice goes there to smoke cigarettes. And so as he reaches for his pack of smokes, he discovers that he can't touch them. Hmm. You see, when Beast amped up Eunice's power, he made it so he literally couldn't touch or be touched by anything. Now we follow Eunice down the street where everything is flying away from him, like bricks are literally pulling themselves off the side of buildings to get away. And I I mean, we've all been there, right? Uh, He then heads to a steak shack and orders a meal, only the meat flies away from him too. You you might see where this is headed now. We jump back to the X-Men, where Bobby suggests that Scott call the Professor to see what to do about the bouncing, betraying beast. And Scott tells him to settle down a bit. Then, Angel swoops by with a plastic bubble for them to drop over Eunice. Why, at this point, Beast can't just tell him what his plan was? I I couldn't say. Uh, This seems like a perfectly good waste of a plastic bubble, because we're never going to see it again. Uh, The phone rings, and Cyclops is sure that it's Iceman calling in. Because, you see, he was sent to follow Eunice around the city. Gene worries about Bobby being out on the streets alone. I mean, after all, he is just 16 years old. Scott reminds her that he's a fully graduated X-Man, just as she is. The X-Men then arrive on the street, where Eunice is frantically attempting to stuff his face. He's starving, you see. I mean, it must be minutes since he's eaten last. And uh, his amped-up powers ain't letting him shove anything into his mouth. At this point, Beast finally explains the situation to him, and he offers to negate the supercharge if Eunice promises to be a good boy and not join up with Magneto. Eunice promises to go back to being just a plain old world champion wrestler. Beast blasts him again with the device, assuring him that should Eunice go back on his word, he'll zap him again and then just destroy the device. So Eunice is happy that he can eat once more and shoves either a slice of strawberry cake or a really odd-looking sandwich wedge into his mouth. We wrap up with the X-Men giving three cheers to the Beast, and we are out of here. Next time out, we got Avengers vs. X-Men, round one. But we're not done with this book yet. We got ourselves a letters page to attend to here. Let's jump right in. We're going to start with Richard in Minneapolis. He loves the X-Men. Just loves them. He hates what Jean's new headdress does to her russet tresses. Hmm. Though he likes the cat's eye mask, he doesn't like the new hairdo that she wears to compliment it. Well, you don't have to worry about that for long, pal. He likes Wanda and Pietro, but doesn't feel as though they ought to join the X-Men. He wants to see them guest star in other books, to which I say, well, you just wait. He specifically wants to see Wanda in a metaphysical duel with Doctor Strange, and, uh, well, you'll have to wait a little while longer for that. He doesn't like Namor being referred to as a mutant, and would like a no prize for having this opinion. Okay... Uh, He also requests that his no prize be sent to Limbo, where he can pick it up when he has absolutely nothing better to do. And I think we just learned why Dick is short for Richard. Stan balks at the no prize comment, suggesting that postage to Limbo is just way too outrageous. And I mean, what an odd letter. (laughs) You know, it's funny, you think about somebody actually pulling out the paper, pulling out a pen, writing this down, putting a stamp on an envelope, throwing this in a mailbox. I mean, what do I... okay. Speaking of which, let's check in with Doug in Iowa. Now, he loved issue 6 so much that he couldn't wait to find his writing paper to send in a letter to tell Stan Lee that he loved issue 6 so much that he couldn't wait to find his writing paper. And that's it. (laughs) Okay, Doug. Cool story. Uh, Gerald in Oregon, or Oregon, however you say that. I'm from New York. I don't know how to say things. He uh, questions Namor being a mutant, and he suggests that they refer to him instead as a hybrid... Stan doesn't think that's a terrible idea. 
Terry in Idaho. He says the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are overexposed. Give them a rest, Stan. And he loved issue six all the same. Mixed messages. Vincent in Detroit. He responds to a letter hack back in issue six that stated that Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver should join the X-Men or get their own book. Vinny thinks this is a terrible idea because Wanda and Pietro are the most original villains ever created. Wow, the bar was low back in 1964. Nick in Philadelphia. He enjoyed issue six. He likes Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Would like to see more of a budding romance between Wanda and Namor. Okay. Uh, Ronald in Michigan. He compliments Stan's characterization on early issues of Fantastic Four, but tells him that he ruined it later by making all of the characters in that book act like comedians. He hopes that Stan doesn't screw up the X-Men the very same way. Stan, uh, you know, takes this, uh, takes this on the chin. He just kind of brushes it off. William in Brooklyn. He's got a numbered list, my very favorite kind of letter. One, give Iceman back his boots. Jeez, what is it with Bobby's booties here? Everybody's writing in about this. Two, give the X-Men an X-Mobile. Three, introduce the X-Men to Daredevil. Four, have Quicksilver defeat the Brotherhood. Five, introduce a new villain. Six, bring back the Vanisher. So which is it? You want new villains or the Vanisher? Seven, put the X-Men in the next Marvel Annual. And Stan promises to put this entire list in his immediate action pile, which... I'm assuming is the uh, the garbage receptacle. Next, Lizette in Maine. She hates Jean's new haircut. She says she looks like a cross between one of the Beatles and a shaggy dog, and would like to see it curlier. Stan blames Jack, and he says that he'll you know he'll try to get him to do some new hairdos for Jeannie. Stephen in Indiana. He wants Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to turn good, but not join the X Men. Well, we've got some good news for you there, Steve. He also wants the X-Men to go monthly and also to get an annual, and, uh, well, you probably got some good news for you there as well. So, Stephen, you're all good. Our final letter is another Steve in Illinois. He doesn't want to see the, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver go completely good, and he likes them as they are now, just as conflicted bad guys. You know, they got a debt to pay to Magneto, and uh, but they also have a heart. And, I mean, that does make them uh, you know, sort of novelty villains, right? They, they are conflicted. They are... Uh, they have challenges, which, I mean, they're not flat-out evil, and they're not uh, flat-out good. It's one of those early uh, Shades of Grey sort of situations. Now, the letters are done, but we do have some special announcements. We find out the, that the X-Men versus the Avengers will be in the very next issue, and also the return of Professor X, which, I mean, how can we miss him if he doesn't stay gone, right? Uh, Stan also introduces the MMMS, which is the Merry Marvel Marching Society, and he offers folks the opportunity to join their ranks. Last, we have the mighty Marvel checklist, and we go through the entire line of Marvel books here. Fantastic Four number 33, which promises the umpteenth return of Namor the Submariner, because, of course. Amazing Spider-Man number 19, guest-starring the Human Torch. Avengers number 10 features the Avengers breaking up. Probably not for too long. Probably for maybe, I don't know, 20 pages. Uh, Strange Tales number 127 has a car race in the Human Torch Thing story, and uh, Doctor Strange faces off with the Dread Dormammu. Thor 110, uh, Thor faces off against a bunch of bad guys. Okay. Tales of Suspense number 60, Iron Man is wanted for murder, and Captain America just wants to curl your hair. Tales to Astonish number 62, Giant Man versus the Wasp, 
and a Hulk story that'll be nothing to sneeze at, which is to say, maybe Stan hasn't written it yet, or maybe it's just a, maybe not. There's nothing to it. Finally, Sergeant Fury number twelve, and uh, here one of the Howling Commandos deserts the crew. But that's the entire issue minus ads. Um, I might be getting something that will have ads in it very soon, so. Maybe we'll talk about an ad or two every issue. I I, I can't. I don't want to make any promises because uh, just including these letters, pages, and and bulletins have uh, added quite a bit of time to the uh, to the process here. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe we'll. If there's an ad that really stands out, we'll uh, we'll discuss it here toward the end of the episode. But what do we think about this one? What do we think about this one? This is a. Uh, you know, I can't even say it's tropey because it is so early in the Silver Age. But. Uh, I mean, it has that Silver Age trope where we wouldn't have an issue if people would take five seconds to, to just talk to one another, right? Beast here, I mean, he quits the team because, of course, <laughs> we have to have... I mean, he. we've had Cyclops threaten to quit. We've had Angel quit when he turned evil for five seconds. Professor X is somewhere on the run. And uh, here, Beast is going to, uh, to quit the team. And he does so in a very, very uh, melodramatic way here. Just, you know, hey, I'm still quitting. Hey, I'm, I'm still leaving. Hey, can someone watch me leave, please? Because I'm leaving, I promise. I'm not coming back. Of course, that doesn't last terribly long. It's just one of those things that... Uh, I, maybe it's just a way to fill pages. I don't know. But so much of the end of this story, the back half of the story, would have been fixed by B saying, Hey, I have a plan. I'm going to amp up his powers so he needs us to revert him back to his normal you know, power set. But no, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that. All he says is like, Hey, you need to see this. You need to see this, and then you'll you'll understand. It's not hard to explain. <laughs> it really isn't. It's just that that is the Silver Age trope, right? I mean, in fairness, it's a fictional trope. I mean, it's just a, a trope in every form of fiction. A television show where a misunderstanding happens. And that's basically every sitcom ever, right? There's always a misunderstanding that could be just wiped away with a five-second explanation. Uh, but you need to get to that 23rd minute, right? You need to get, you need to fill the space. So we get that here. And it's not really the, the worst thing in the world. It's, you know, it's very well told. I, I like using the, the pseudoscience here, amping up the powers. It makes you wonder, though, like, if Beast is able to, con- to just create this device, right? A device that could amp up mutant powers here. Why aren't they using it on themselves? Or, or why aren't they using the flip switch to negate it to, like, zap Magneto, right? I mean, I don't know that we'll ever see this device again, is what I'm trying to say, where it feels like too good a machine to just let, you know, lay by the wayside or, you know, sit in a corner collecting dust somewhere. It's a, it's a very one-and-done thing. We're probably not supposed to be thinking about it quite as much as I currently am. That said, I mean, this was a, it was nice to see a character that wasn't Magneto. Um, Eunice is not, is you know, by far not one of the most exciting villains out there. He's fairly dull. He is fairly dull, but uh, he's not Magneto. And frankly, we've had a lot of Magneto lately, so it's nice to see someone, someone a little different. Um, I do think I need to uh, at least address. I'm looking at my Audacity uh, screen here, and somewhere in the middle of my synopsis, there was some sort of like temporal. Disturbance of some sort here Just things went all over the place I'll try to edit it out Because I, I don't know what the hell happened there Just this odd temporal thing Just, just I, I really don't know 
No promises. I don't know if I'll be able to scrub it out without losing all the audio here, but I will do my best to, to remove whatever I can out of that confusing jumble of a... I don't even... I don't even remember what it was. It's just very, very bizarre looking at it here. But uh, apologies if that uh, if it confuses anybody. And I figure we probably we probably should just never mention it again. Is what I'm thinking here. But uh, overall, a fine issue. Nothing to really you know rock our socks. But also, it didn't really set them on fire either. So not bad. Worth a read to be sure. But uh, I think that's probably all I have to say about it. Uh, before we get out of here, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got one letter from uh, our good friend Doc Strange, Billy Dunleavy here. He's writing in about episode number nine, where we talked about Fantastic Four number 28. He says, hey, Chris, this sounds like a fun issue. Obviously, nothing with a lot of weight to it, but fun nonetheless. Looking forward to more episodes. Thanks for doing what you do. And thank you. Thank you so much for, for listening to this uh, the sister series here and uh, and for writing in. It really, really means a lot to me. And yeah, the Fantastic Four issue... Not a whole lot of meat to it, right? It was uh, the the classic Marvel meat cute, where it's like, you know, we have the misunderstanding, we fight for a minute, and then we're we're okay with each other, and uh, we find out what the real threat is. It's uh, you know maybe only notable because it's it's very early, and also uh, like I mentioned during that episode, I think it was probably the highest profile X Men appearance to date. I think that's probably where a lot of folks in the uh, the mid '60s. Maybe first saw the X-Men, maybe first took notice of them, or maybe first read something with them in it. They might have seen it on the racks, but here was the first time they were actually sitting down and, uh, and meeting these characters. So, very important issue for that, uh, for that alone, but, you know, it's still, you know, just another silly Silver Age issue. But uh, thank you so much for writing in, and I would like to invite anybody to uh, take part in the show, share some thoughts, uh, and help keep me motivated in this uh Nearly daily endeavor So you could reach me several different ways You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics On Instagram at 90sXmen You can call into the X-Lapsed hotline at 623-396-JERK For blog posts and show notes You can head over to chrisoninfiniteearths.com You can join us on Facebook Our little group is 90sXmen Pretty easy to find We've had a, a pretty fruitful weekend Getting a, a few new members there to join in the conversation It's a really good time over there A nice a nice little community, and I hope to see you all there. Uh, finally, for all your Chris and Reggie comics commentary listening needs, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, everything, 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 all the noise sites. And if while you're there you like what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, tell a friend or two, and perhaps ask them to do the same. It would really help the show out, and it would really help me out personally. So thank you in advance for that. And uh, thank you in the present for allowing me to be part of your day-to-day. It really, really means so much that you choose to listen to my silly little program. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.